This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter and don't get sick. BunnySlippers.com, they've got those cool, woolly, highland cow slippers that everyone thinks are super cool. They're all shaggy and woolly and gosh darn it, don't they keep your feet warm. Also, found item clothing, cool shirts from your favorite cult movies. Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by them and whoever else our sponsor is and by the folks who listen to it, you. Want to help out the show? Get your name mentioned in the credits? Contact me in social media so I know because uh, I'm really bad at keeping track of this stuff. But uh, paypal.me slash pgttcm pgttcm.com Look for how to shop, be a patron, listen to all the episodes or all the episodes that are available currently, and find out more about the show. Hey everyone, it's me, D.B. Spitzer. Uh, I'm, I'm super sick. I've been out of work for a couple of days because I've been so sick. Um, I've been kind of bedridden. I don't have the coronavirus. I know I live in Portland and I take mass transit everywhere. Um, I've been sick for a while and I've just been pushing it too hard and, you know, three podcasts, two jobs and everything else that I've got going on. But anyway, so, um, that doesn't mean I'm going to slow down on podcasts or anything else. I'm just going to try and take it easy and other stuff. So yeah, um, I have my my computer next to me in bed, so I decided to do this because I haven't been able to get into the studio for a bit, but I have this laptop here. So, sorry about the audio quality, and if you say, hey, what audio quality? Well, sorry for the audio quality in general. All right. Uh, remember, you can find the show at any podcatchers that you know and recommend it to your friends if, you know, something to listen to. And, you know, just, just tell them to skip the first three minutes. I always set up the first three minutes for uh, for this part. And then that's it. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales and our monthly show, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Articulate Warbling, Dave's Corner of the Podcast, uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, and all that kind of fun stuff. Thank you again so much. And uh, this this month is uh, Nikolai uh, Gogol. So enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol, translated by DJ Hogarth, Part Two, Chapter One, Section Two, read by Anna Simon. Again, amongst other things, Chenchetnikov conceived the idea of establishing a school for his people. But the scheme resulted in a farce which left him in sackcloth and ashes. In the same way, he found that, when it came to a question of dispensing justice and of adjusting disputes, the host of judicial subtleties with which the professors had provided him proved absolutely useless. That is to say, the one party lied, and the other party lied, and only the devil could have decided between them. Consequently, he himself perceived that a knowledge of mankind would have availed him more than all the legal refinements and philosophical maxims in the world could do. He lacked something, and though he could not divine what it was, the situation brought about was the common one of the baron failing to understand the peasant, and the peasant failing to understand the baron, and both becoming disaffected. 
In the end, these difficulties so chilled Tchentchetnikov's enthusiasm that he took to supervising the labors of the field with greatly diminished attention. That is to say, no matter whether the sides were softly swishing through the grass, or ricks were being built, or rafts being loaded, he would allow his eyes to wander from his men, and to fall to gazing at, say, a red-billed, red-legged heron, which, after strutting along the bank of a stream, would have caught a fish in its beak, and be holding it a while, as though in doubt whether to swallow it. Next he would glance towards the spot where a similar bird, but one not yet in possession of a fish, was engaged in watching the doings of its mate. Lastly, with eyebrows knitted and face turned to scan the zenith, he would drink in the smell of the fields and fall to listening to the winged population of the air as from earth and sky alike the manifold music of winged creatures combined in a single harmonious chorus. In the rye the quill would be calling, and in the grass the corncrake, and over them would be wheeling flocks of twittering linnets. Also, the jacksnipe would be uttering his croak, and the lark executing its roulades where it become lost in the sunshine, and cranes sending forth their trumpet-like challenge as they deployed towards the zenith in triangle-shaped flocks. In fact, the neighborhood would seem to have become converted into one great concert of melody. O oh, Creator, how fair is thy world, where, in remote, rural seclusion, it lies apart from cities and from highways. But soon even this began to pall upon Tchentchetnikov, and he ceased altogether to visit his fields, or to do aught but shut himself up in his rooms, where he refused to receive even the bailiff when that functionary called with his reports. Again, although until now he had to a certain extent associated with a retired colonel of hussars, a man saturated with tobacco smoke, and also with a student of pronounced but immature opinions who culled the bulk of his wisdom from contemporary newspapers and pamphlets, he found, as time went on, that these companions proved as tedious as the rest, and came to think their conversation superficial, and their European method of comporting themselves, that is to say, the method of conversing with much slapping of knees and a great deal of bowing and gesticulating, too direct and unadored. So these and everyone else he decided to drop, and carried this resolution into effect with a certain amount of rudeness. On the next occasion that Vavra Nikolaevich Vizhnepokhomov called to indulge in a free and easy symposium on politics, philosophy, literature, morals, and the state of financial affairs in England. He was, in all matters which admit of superficial discussion, the pleasantest fellow alive, seeing that he was a typical representative both of the retired fire-eater and of the school of thought which is now becoming the rage. When, I say, this next happened, Tchentchetnikov merely sent out to say that he was not at home, and then carefully showed himself at the window. Host and guest exchanged glances, and, while the one muttered through his teeth, the cur, the other relieved his feelings with a remark or two on swine. Thus the acquaintance came to an abrupt end, and from that time forth no visitor called at the mansion. Tchentchetnikov in no way regretted this, for he could now devote himself wholly to the projection of a great work on Russia. Of the scale on which this composition was conceived, the reader is already aware. The reader also knows how strange, how unsystematic, was the system employed in it. Yet to say that Tchentchetnikov never awoke from his lethargy would not be altogether true. On the contrary, when the post brought him newspapers and reviews, and he saw in their printed pages, perhaps, the well-known name of some former comrade who had succeeded in the great field of public service, or had conferred upon science and the world's work some notable contribution, he would succumb to secret and suppressed grief, and involuntarily there would burst from his soul an expression of aching, voiceless regret that he himself had done so little, and at these times his existence would seem to him odious and repellent. 
At these times there would uprise before him the memory of his school days and the figure of Alexander Petrovitch, as vivid as in life. And, slowly welling, the tears would course over Tchentchetnikov's cheeks. What meant these repinings? Was there not disclosed in them the secret of his galling spiritual pain, the fact that he had failed to order his life aright, to confirm the lofty aims with which he had started his course, the fact that, always poorly equipped with experience, he had failed to attain the better and the higher state, and there to strengthen himself for the overcoming of hindrances and obstacles, the fact that, dissolving like overheated metal, his bounteous store of superior instincts had failed to take the final tempering, the fact that the tutor of his boyhood, a man in a thousand, had prematurely died, and left to Tchentchetnikov no one who could restore to him the moral strength shattered by vacillation and the will-power weakened by want of virility, no one, in short, who could cry heartingly to his soul, FORWARD, the word for which the Russian, of every degree, of every class, of every occupation, of every school of thought, is forever hungering. Indeed, where is the man who can cry aloud for any of us, in the Russian tongue dear to our soul, the all-compelling command, FORWARD? Who is there who, knowing the strength and the nature and the inmost depths of the Russian genius, can by a single magic incantation divert our ideals to the higher life? Were there such a man, with what tears, with what affection, would not the grateful sons of Russia repay him? Yet age succeeds to age, and our callow youth still lies wrapped in shameful sloth, or strives and struggles to no purpose. God has not yet given us the man able to sound the call. One circumstance which almost aroused Tchentchetnikov, which almost brought about a revolution in his character, was the fact that he came very near to falling in love. Yet even this resulted in nothing. Ten versts away there lived the general whom we have heard expressing himself in highly uncomplimentary terms concerning Tchentchetnikov. He maintained a general-like establishment, dispensed hospitality, that is to say, was glad when his neighbors came to pay him their respects, though he himself never went out, spoke always in a hoarse voice, read a certain number of books, and had a daughter, a curious, unfamiliar type, but full of life as life itself. This maiden's name was Ulinka, and she had been strangely brought up, for, losing her mother in early childhood, she had subsequently received instruction at the hands of an English governess, who knew not a single word of Russian. Moreover, her father, though excessively fond of her, treated her always as a toy, with the result that, as she grew to years of discretion, she became wholly wayward and spoiled. Indeed, had anyone seen the sudden rage which would gather on her beautiful young forehead when she was engaged in a heated dispute with her father, he would have thought her one of the most capricious beings in the world. Yet that rage gathered only when she had heard of injustice or harsh treatment, and never because she desired to argue on her own behalf, or to attempt to justify her own conduct. Also, that anger would disappear as soon as ever she saw anyone whom she had formerly disliked fall upon evil times, and, at his first request for alms, would, without consideration or subsequent regret, hand him her purse and its whole contents. Yes, her every act was strenuous, and when she spoke her whole personality seemed to be following hot foot upon her thought, both her expression of face and her diction and the movements of her hands. Nay, the very fault of her frock had a similar appearance of striving, until one would have thought that all herself were flying in pursuit of her words. Nor did she know reticence. Before anyone she would disclose her mind, and no force could compel her to maintain silence when she desired to speak. Also, her enchanting peculiar gait, 
the gate which belonged to her alone, was so absolutely free and unfettered that everyone involuntarily gave her way. Lastly, in her presence, Charles seemed to become confused and fall to silence, and even the roughest and most outspoken would lose their heads and have not a word to say, whereas the shy man would find himself able to converse as never in his life before, and would feel, from the first, as though he had seen her and known her at some previous period, during the days of some unremembered childhood, when he was at home and spending a merry evening among a crowd of romping children and for long afterwards he would feel as though his man's intellect and estate were a burden. This was what now befell Tchentyetnikov, and as it did so, a new feeling entered into his soul, and his dreamy life lightened for a moment. At first the general used to receive him with hospitable civility, but permanent concord between them proved impossible. Their conversation always merged into dissension and soreness, seeing that, while the general could not bear to be contradicted or worsted in argument, Tchentyatnikov was a man of extreme sensitiveness. True, for the daughter's sake, the father was for a while deferred to, and thus peace was maintained, but this lasted only until the time when there arrived, on a visit to the general, two kinswomen of his, the Countess Bratirev and the Princess Uziakin, retired court dames, but ladies who still kept up a certain connection with court circles, and therefore were much fawned upon by their host. No sooner had they appeared on the scene than, so it seemed to Tchentchetnikov, the general's attitude towards the young man became colder. Either he ceased to notice him at all, or he spoke to him familiarly, and as to a person having no standing in society. This offended Tchentchetnikov deeply, and, though, when at length he spoke out on the subject, he retained sufficient presence of mind to compress his lips and to preserve a gentle and courteous tone, his face flushed and his inner man was boiling. "'General,' he said, I thank you for your condescension. By addressing me in the second person singular, you have admitted me to the circle of your most intimate friends. Indeed, were it not that a difference of years forbids any familiarity on my part, I should answer you in similar fashion. The general sat aghast. At length, rallying his tongue and his faculties, he replied that, though he had spoken with a lack of ceremony, he had used the term thou merely as an elderly man naturally employs it towards a junior. He made no reference to the difference of rank. Nevertheless, the acquaintance broke off here, and with it any possibility of love-making. The light which had shed a momentary gleam before Tchentchetnikov's eyes had become extinguished forever, and upon it there followed a darkness denser than before. Everything conduced to evolve the regime which the reader has noted, that regime of sloth and inaction which converted Tchentchetnikov's residence into a place of dirt and neglect. For days at a time would a broom and a heap of dust be left lying in the middle of a room, and trousers tossing about the salon, and pairs of worn-out braces adorning the whatnot near the sofa. In short, so mean and untidy did Tchentchetnikov's mode of life become, that not only his servants, but even his very poultry ceased to treat him with respect. Taking up a pen, he would spend hours in idly sketching houses, huts, wagons, troikas, and flourishes on a piece of paper while at other times, when he had sunk into a reverie, the pen would, all unknowingly, sketch a small head, which had delicate features, a pair of quick, penetrating eyes, and a raised coiffure. Then suddenly the dreamer would perceive, to his surprise, that the pen had executed the portrait of a maiden whose picture no artist could adequately have painted, and therewith his despondency would become greater than ever, and, believing that happiness did not exist on earth, he would relapse into increased ennui, increased neglect of his responsibilities. 
but one morning he noticed, on moving to the window after breakfast, that not a word was proceeding either from the butler or the housekeeper, but that, on the contrary, the courtyard seemed to smack of a sudden bustle and excitement. This was because through the entrance gates, which the kitchen-maid and the scullion had run to open, there were appearing the noses of three horses, one to the right, one in the middle, and one to the left, after the fashion of triumphal groups of statuary. Above them, on the box-seat, were seated a coachman and a valet, while behind, again, there could be discerned a gentleman in a scarf and a fur cap. Only when the equipage had entered the courtyard did it stand revealed as a light-spring britchka, and as it came to a halt there leapt onto the veranda of the mansion an individual of respectable exterior, and possessed of the art of moving with the neatness and alertness of a military man. Upon this Chanjatnikov's heart stood still. He was unused to receiving visitors, and for the moment conceived the new arrival to be a government official, sent to question him concerning an abortive society to which he had formerly belonged. Here the author may interpolate the fact that, in Tchetetnikov's early days, the young man had become mixed up in a very absurd affair. That is to say, a couple of philosophers belonging to a regiment of hussars had, together with an aesthete who had not yet completed his student's course, and a gambler who had squandered his all, formed a secret society of philanthropic aims under the presidency of a certain old rascal of a Freemason, and the ruined gambler aforesaid. The scope of the society's work was to be extensive. It was to bring lasting happiness to humanity at large, from the banks of the Thames to the shores of Kamchatka. But for this, much money was needed. Wherefore, from the noble-minded members of the society, generous contributions were demanded, and then forwarded to a destination known only to the supreme authorities of the concern. As for Tchentjetnikov's adhesion, it was brought about by the two friends already alluded to as embittered, good-hearted souls whom the wear and tear of their efforts on behalf of science, civilization, and the future emancipation of mankind had ended by converting into confirmed drunkards. Perhaps it need hardly be said that Tchentjetnikov soon discovered how things stood, and withdrew from the association. But, meanwhile, the latter had had the misfortune so to have engaged in dealings not wholly creditable to gentlemen of noble origin as likewise to have become entangled in dealings with the police. Consequently, it is not to be wondered at that, though Tchentjetnikov had long severed his connection with the society and its policy, he still remained uneasy in his mind as to what might even yet be the result. However, his fears vanished the instant that the guest saluted him with marked politeness, and explained, but many deferential poises of the head, and in terms at once civil and concise, that for some time past he, the newcomer, had been touring the Russian Empire on business and in the pursuit of knowledge, that the Empire abounded in objects of interest, not to mention a plenitude of manufacturers and a great diversity of soil, and that, in spite of the fact that he was greatly struck with the amenities of his host's domain, he would certainly not have presumed to intrude at such an inconvenient hour, but for the circumstance that the inclement spring weather, added to the state of the roads, had necessitated sundry repairs to his carriage, at the hands of wheelwrights and blacksmiths. Finally, he declared that, even if this last had not happened, he would still have felt unable to deny himself the pleasure of offering to his host that meed of homage which was the latter's due. This speech, a speech of fascinating bonhomie, delivered, the guest executed a sort of shuffle, with a half-wood of patent leather, studded with buttons of mother-of-pearl, and followed that up by, in spite of his pronounced rotundity of figure, stepping backwards with all the elan of an India-rubber ball. From this, the somewhat reassured Tchentjetnikov concluded that his visitor must be a literary, knowledge-seeking professor who was engaged in roaming the country in search of botanical specimens and fossils, wherefore he hastened to express both his readiness to further the visitor's objects, 
whatever they might be, and his personal willingness to provide him with the requisite wheelwrights and blacksmiths. Meanwhile, he begged his guest to consider himself at home, and, after seating him in an armchair, made preparations to listen to the newcomer's discourse on natural history. But the newcomer applied himself, rather, to phenomena of the internal world, saying that his life might be likened to a bark tossed on the crests of perfidious billows, that in his time he had been fated to play many parts, and that on more than one occasion his life had stood in danger at the hands of foes. At the same time, these tidings were communicated in a manner calculated to show that the speaker was also a man of practical capabilities. In conclusion, the visitor took out a cambric pocket-handkerchief and sneezed into it with a vehemence wholly new to Tchetchetnikov's experience. In fact, the sneeze rather resembled the note which, at times, the trombone of an orchestra appears to utter not so much from its proper place on the platform as from the immediate neighbourhood of the listener's ear. And as the echoes of the drowsy mansion resounded to the report of the explosion, there followed upon the same a wave of perfume, skilfully wafted abroad with a flourish of the eau de cologne-scented handkerchief. By this time, the reader will have guessed that the visitor was none other than our old and respected friend, Paul Ivanovich Chichikov. Naturally, time had not spared him his share of anxieties and alarms, wherefore his exterior had come to look a trifle more elderly, his frock-coat had taken on the suggestion of shabbiness, and britchka, coachman, valet, horses and harness alike had about them a sort of second-hand, worse-for-wear effect. Evidently, the Chichikovian finances were not in the most flourishing of conditions. Nevertheless, the old expression of face, the old air of breeding and refinement, remained unimpaired, and our hero had even improved in the art of walking and turning with grace, and of dexterously crossing one leg over the other when taking a seat. Also, his mildness of diction, his discreet moderation of word and phrase, survived in, if anything, increased measure, and he bore himself with the skill which caused his tactfulness to surpass itself in sureness of aplomb. And all these accomplishments had their effect further heightened by a snowy immaculateness of colour and dicky, and an absence of dust from his frock-coat, as complete as though he had just arrived to attend a name-day festival. Lastly, his cheeks and chin were of such neat clean-shavenness that no one but a blind man could have failed to admire their rounded contours. From that moment onwards, great changes took place in Tchetchetnikov's establishment, and certain of its rooms assumed an unwanted air of cleanliness and order. The rooms in question were those assigned to Chichikov, while one other apartment, a little front chamber opening into the hall, became permeated with Petrushka's own peculiar smell. But this lasted only for a little while, for presently Petrushka was transferred to the servants' quarters, a course which ought to have been adopted in the first instance. During the initial days of Chichikov's sojourn, Tchentchetnikov feared rather to lose his independence, inasmuch as he thought that his guest might hamper his movements and bring about alterations in the established routine of the place. But these fears proved groundless, for Paul Ivanovich displayed an extraordinary aptitude for accommodating himself to his new position. To begin with, he encouraged his host in his philosophical inertia by saying that the latter would help Tchentchetnikov to become a centenarian. Next, in the matter of a life of isolation, he hit things off exactly by remarking that such a life bred in a man a capacity for high thinking. Lastly, as he inspected the library and dilated on books in general, he contrived an opportunity to observe that literature safeguarded a man from a tendency to waste his time, 
In short, the few words of which he delivered himself were brief, but invariably to the point. And this discretion of speech was outdone by his discretion of conduct. That is to say, whether entering or leaving the room, he never wearied his host with a question if Tchentchetnikov had the air of being disinclined to talk, and with equal satisfaction the guest could either play chess or hold his tongue. Consequently, Tchentchetnikov said to himself, For the first time in my life I have met with a man with whom it is possible to live. In general, not many of the type exist in Russia, and, though clever, good-humoured, well-educated men abound, one would be hard put to it to find an individual of equable temperament with whom one could share a roof for centuries without a quarrel arising. Anyway, Chichikov is the first of his sort that I have met. For his part, Chichikov was only too delighted to reside with a person so quiet and agreeable as his host. Of a wandering life he was temporarily weary, and to rest, even for a month, in such a beautiful spot, and in sight of green fields and the slow flowering of spring, was likely to benefit him also from the hygienic point of view. And, indeed, a more delightful retreat in which to recuperate could not possibly have been found. The spring, long retarded by previous cold, had now begun in all its comeliness, and life was rampant. Already, over the first emerald of the grass, the dandelion was showing yellow, and the red-pink anemone was hanging its tender head, while the surface of every pond was a swarm of dancing gnats and midges, and the water-spider was being joined in their pursuit by birds which gathered from every quarter to the vantage-ground of the dry reeds. Every species of creature, also, seemed to be assembling in concourse and taking stock of one another. Suddenly the earth became populous, the forest had opened its eyes, and the meadows were lifting their voice in song. In the same way had choral dances begun to be weaved in the village, and everywhere that the eye turned there was merriment. What brightness in the green of nature, what freshness in the air, what singing of birds in the gardens of the mansion, what general joy and rapture and exultation! Particularly in the village might the shouting and singing have been in honour of a wedding. Chichikov walked hither, thither, and everywhere, a pursuit for which there was ample choice and facility. At one time he would direct his steps along the edge of the flat tableland and contemplate the depths below, where still there lay sheets of water left by the floods of winter, and where the island-like patches of forest showed leafless boughs, while at another time he would plunge into the thicket and ravine country, where nests of birds weighted branches almost to the ground, and the sky was darkened with a criss-cross flight of cawing rooks. Again, the drier portions of the meadows could be crossed to the river wharves, whence the first barges were just beginning to set forth with pea-meal and barley and wheat, while at the same time one's ear would be caught with the sound of some mill resuming its functions as once more the water turned the wheel. Chichikov would also walk afield to watch the early tillage operations of the season, and observe how the blackness of a new furrow would make its way across the expanse of green, and how the sower, rhythmically striking his hand against the panniers slung across his breast, would scatter his fistfuls of seed with equal distribution, apportioning not a grain too much to one side or to the other. In fact, Chichikov went everywhere. He chatted and talked, now with a bailiff, now with a peasant, now with a miller, and inquired into the manner and nature of everything, and sought information as to how an estate was managed, and at what price corn was selling, and what species of grain was best for spring and autumn grinding, and what was the name of each peasant, and who his kinsfolk, and where he had bought his cow, and what he fed his pigs on. Chichikov also made inquiry concerning the number of peasants who had lately died, but of these there appeared to be few. 
and suddenly his quick eye discerned that Tchentchetnikov's estate was not being worked as it might have been, that much neglect and listlessness and pilfering and drunkenness was abroad, and on perceiving this he thought to himself, "'What a fool is that Tchentchetnikov! To think of letting a property like this decay when he might be drawing from it an income of fifty thousand roubles a year!' Also, more than once, while taking these walks, our hero pondered the idea of himself becoming a landowner. Not now, of course, but later, when his chief aim should have been achieved, and he had got into his hands the necessary means for living the quiet life of the proprietor of an estate. Yes, and at these times there would include itself in his castle building the figure of a young, fresh, fair-faced maiden of the mercantile or other rich grade of society, a woman who could both play and sing. He also dreamt of little descendants who should perpetuate the name of Chichikov, perhaps a frolicsome little boy and a fair young daughter, or possibly two boys and quite two or three daughters, so that all should know that he had really lived and had his being, that he had not merely roamed the world like a spectre or a shadow, so that for him and his the country should never be put to shame. And from that he would go on to fancy that a title appended to his rank would not be a bad thing the title of state councillor, for instance, which was deserving of all honour and respect. Ah, it is a common thing for a man who is taking a solitary walk, so to detach himself from the irksome realities of the present, that he is able to stir and to excite and to provoke his imagination to the conception of things he knows can never really come to pass. Chichikov's servants also found the mansion to their taste, and, like their master, speedily made themselves at home in it. In particular did Petrushka make friends with Grigory the butler, although at first the pair showed a tendency to outbreak one another, Petrushka beginning by throwing dust in Grigory's eyes on the score of his, Petrushka's, travels, and Grigory taking him down a peg or two by referring to St. Petersburg, a city which Petrushka had never visited, and Petrushka seeking to recover lost ground by dilating on towns which he had visited and Grigory capping this by naming some town which is not to be found on any map in existence, and then estimating the journey thither as at least thirty thousand versts, a statement which would so completely flabbergast the henchman of Chichikov's suite that he would be left staring open-mouthed amid the general laughter of the domestic staff. However, as I say, the pair ended by swearing eternal friendship with one another, and making a practice of resorting to the village tavern in company. For Selifan, however, the place had a charm of a different kind. That is to say, each evening there would take place in the village a singing of songs and a weaving of country dances, and so shapely and buxom were the maidens, maidens of a type hard to find in our present-day villages on large estates, that it would stand for hours wondering which of them was the best. White-necked and white-bosomed, all had great roving eyes, the gait of peacocks, and hair reaching to the waist and as, with his hands clasping theirs, he glided hither and thither in the dance, or retired backwards towards a wall with a row of other young fellows, and then, with them, returned to meet the damsels, all singing in chorus, and laughing as they sang it, Boyars, show me my bridegroom! And dusk was failing gently, and from the other side of the river there kept coming far, faint, plaintive echoes of the melody. Well, then our Selifan hardly knew whether he was standing upon his head or his heels, Later, when sleeping and when waking, both at noon and at twilight, he would seem still to be holding a pair of white hands and moving in the dance. Chichikov's horses also found nothing of which to disapprove. 
Yes, both the bay, the assessor, and the skewbold accounted residence at Tchentchetnikov's a most comfortable affair, and voted the oats excellent, and the arrangement of the stables beyond all cavil. True, on this occasion each horse had a stall to himself, yet, by looking over the intervening partition, it was possible always to see one's fellows, and, should a neighbour take it into his head to utter a neigh, to answer it at once. As for the errand which had hitherto led Chichikov to travel about Russia, he had now decided to move very cautiously and secretly in the matter. In fact, on noticing that Tchentchetnikov went in absorbedly for reading and for talking philosophy, the visitor said to himself, No, I had better begin at the other end, and proceeded first to feel his way among the servants of the establishment. From them he learned several things, and, in particular, that the baron had been wont to go and call upon a certain general in the neighbourhood, and that the general possessed a daughter, and that she and Tchentchetnikov had had an affair of some sort, but that the pair had subsequently parted, and gone their several ways. For that matter, Chichikov himself had noticed that Tchentchetnikov was in the habit of drawing heads of which each representation exactly resembled the rest. Once, as he sat tapping his silver snuff-box after luncheon, Chichikov remarked, "'One thing you lack, and only one, Andrei Ivanovitch.' "'What is that?' asked his host. "'A female friend or two, replied Chichikov. Tchentchetnikov made no rejoinder, and the conversation came temporarily to an end. But Chichikov was not to be discouraged, wherefore, while waiting for supper and talking on different subjects, he seized an opportunity to interject, "'Do you know, it will do you no harm to marry.' As before, Tchentchetnikov did not reply, and the renewed mention of the subject seemed to have annoyed him. For the third time, it was after supper, Chichikov returned to the charge by remarking, "'Today, as I was walking round your property, I could not help thinking that marriage would do you a great deal of good. Otherwise, you will develop into a hypochondriac.' Whether Chichikov's words now voiced sufficiently the note of persuasion, or whether Tchentchetnikov happened, at the moment, to be unusually disposed to frankness, at all events, the young landowner sighed, and then responded as he expelled a puff of tobacco smoke. To attain anything, Paul Ivanovitch, one needs to have been born under a lucky star. And he related to his guest the whole history of his acquaintanceship and subsequent rupture with the general. As Chichikov listened to the recital, and gradually realized that the affair had arisen merely out of a chance word on the general's part, he was astounded beyond measure, and gazed at Tchentchetnikov without knowing what to make of him. Andrei Ivanovitch, he said at length, what was there to take offence at? Nothing as regards the actual words spoken, replied the other. The offence lay, rather, in the insult conveyed in the general's tone. Tchentchetnikov was a kindly and peaceable man, yet his eyes flashed as he said this, and his voice vibrated with wounded feeling. Yet, even then, need you have taken it so much amiss? What? Could I have gone on visiting him as before? Certainly. No great harm had been done. I disagree with you. Had he been an old man in a humble station of life, instead of a proud and swaggering officer, I shouldn't have minded so much. But as it was, I could not and would not brook his words. A curious fellow, this Tchentchetnikov, thought Chichikov to himself. A curious fellow, this Chichikov, was Tchentchetnikov's inward reflection. I tell you what, resumed Chichikov. Tomorrow I myself will go and see the general. "'To what purpose?' asked Tchentchetnikov, with astonishment and distrust in his eyes. "'To offer him an assurance of my personal respect.' "'A strange fellow, this Tchentchetnikov,' reflected Tchentchetnikov. "'A strange fellow, this Tchentchetnikov,' thought Tchentchetnikov, and then added aloud, 
"'Yes, I will go and see him at ten o'clock tomorrow. "'But since my britchka is not yet altogether in travelling order, "'would you be so good as to lend me your kolioska for the purpose?' End of Part 2, Chapter 1「Dead Souls」by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol Translated by D. J. Hogarth Part 2, Chapter 2 Read by Gesine Tientietnikov's good horses covered the ten versts to the general's house in a little over half an hour. Descending from the Kolyaska with features attuned to deference, Chichikov inquired for the master of the house, and was at once ushered into his presence. Bowing, with head held respectfully on one side, and hands extended, like those of a waiter carrying a trayful of teacups, the visitor inclined his whole body forward, and said, "'I have deemed it my duty to present myself to your Excellency. I have deemed it my duty because in my heart I cherish a most profound respect for the valiant men who, on the field of battle, have proven the saviours of their country.' That this preliminary attack did not wholly displease the general was proved by the fact that, responding with a gracious inclination of the head, he replied, "'I am glad to make your acquaintance. Pray be so good as to take a seat. In what capacity or capacities have you yourself seen service?' "'Of my service,' said Chichikov, depositing his form not exactly in the centre of the chair, but rather on one side of it and resting a hand upon one of its arms. Of my service the scene was laid, in the first instance, in the treasury, while its further course bore me successively into the employ of the Public Buildings Commission, of the Customs Board, and of other government offices. But throughout my life has resembled a bark, tossed on the crests of perfidious billows. In suffering I have been swathed and wrapped, until I have come to be, as it were, suffering personified, while of the extent to which my life has been sought by foes, no words, no colouring, no, if I may so express it, painter's brush, could ever convey to you an adequate idea. And now at length, in my declining years, I am seeking a corner in which to eke out the remainder of my miserable existence, while at the present moment I am enjoying the hospitality of a neighbour of your acquaintance. And who is that? Your neighbour Tientietnikov, Your Excellency. Upon that the general frowned. Let me add, put in Chichikov hastily, that he greatly regrets that on a former occasion he should have failed to show a proper respect for... for... for what? asked the general. For the services to the public which Your Excellency has rendered. Indeed, he cannot find words to express his sorrow but keeps repeating to himself, Would that I had valued at their true worth the men who have saved our fatherland. And why should he say that? asked the mollified general. I bear him no grudge. In fact, I have never cherished aught but a sincere liking for him, a sincere esteem, and do not doubt but that, in time, he may become a useful member of society. In the words which you have been good enough to utter, said Chichikov with a bow, there is embodied much justice. Yes, Tientietnikov is in very truth a man of worth. Not only does he possess the gift of eloquence, 
but also he is a master of the pen. Ah, yes, he does write rubbish of some sort, doesn't he? Verses or something of the kind. Not rubbish, Your Excellency, but practical stuff. In short, he is inditing a history. A history? But a history of what? A history of... of... For a moment or two, Chichikov hesitated. Then, whether because it was a general that was seated in front of him, or because he desired to impart greater importance to the subject which he was about to invent, he concluded, A history of generals, Your Excellency. Of generals? Of what generals? Of generals generally. Of generals at large. That is to say, and to be more precise, a history of the generals of our fatherland. By this time Chichikov was floundering badly. Mentally he spat upon himself and reflected, Gracious heavens, what rubbish I am talking! Pardon me, went on his interlocutor, but I do not quite understand you. Is Tientietnikov producing a history of a given period, or only a history made up of a series of biographies? Also, is he including all our generals, or only those who took part in the campaign of 1812? "'The latter, Your Excellency, only the generals of 1812,' replied Chichikov. Then he added beneath his breath, "'Were I to be killed for it, I could not say what that may be supposed to mean.' "'Then why should he not come and see me in person?' went on his host. "'Possibly I might be able to furnish him with much interesting material.' "'He is afraid to come, Your Excellency.' "'Nonsense!' "'just because of a hasty word or two. "'I am not that sort of man at all. "'In fact, I should be very happy to call upon him.' "'Never would he permit that, Your Excellency. "'He would greatly prefer to be the first to make advances.' "'And Chichikov added to himself, "'What a stroke of luck those generals were! "'Otherwise the Lord knows where my tongue might have landed me.' "'At this moment the door into the adjoining room opened.' and there appeared in the doorway a girl as fair as a ray of the sun. So fair, indeed, that Chichikov stared at her in amazement. Apparently she had come to speak to her father for a moment, but had stopped short on perceiving that there was someone with him. The only fault to be found in her appearance was the fact that she was too thin and fragile-looking. "'May I introduce you to my little pet?' said the general to Chichikov. "'To tell you the truth, I do not know your name.' "'That you should be unacquainted with the name of one "'who has never distinguished himself in the manner of which you yourself can boast "'is scarcely to be wondered at.' "'And Chichikov executed one of his sidelong deferential bows. "'Well, I should be delighted to know it. "'It is Paul Ivanovich Chichikov, Your Excellency.' "'With that went the easy bow of a military man,' "'and the agile backward movement of an India-rubber ball. "'Yulinka, this is Paul Ivanovich,' said the general, turning to his daughter. "'He has just told me some interesting news, "'namely that our neighbour Tientietnikov "'is not altogether the fool we had at first thought him. "'On the contrary, he is engaged upon a very important work, "'upon a history of the Russian generals of 1812.' "'But whoever supposed him to be a fool?' "'asked the girl quickly. "'What happened was that you took Vishnipokromov's word, "'the word of a man who is himself both a fool and a good-for-nothing.' 
"'Well, well,' said the father, after further good-natured dispute on the subject of Vishnipokromov. "'Do you now run away, for I wish to dress for luncheon. And you, sir,' he added to Chichikov, "'will you not join us at table?' Chichikov bowed so low and so long that, by the time that his eyes had ceased to see nothing but his own boots, the general's daughter had disappeared, and in her place was standing a bewhiskered butler, armed with a silver soap-dish and a hand-basin. "'Do you mind if I wash in your presence?' asked the host. "'By no means,' replied Chichikov. "'Pray do whatsoever you please in that respect.' Upon that the general fell to scrubbing himself, incidentally to sending soap-suds flying in every direction. Meanwhile he seemed so favourably disposed that Chichikov decided to sound him then and there, more especially since the butler had left the room. "'May I put to you a problem?' he asked. "'Certainly,' replied the general. "'What is it?' "'It is this, Your Excellency. I have a decrepit old uncle who owns three hundred souls and two thousand rubles worth of other property. Also, except for myself, he possesses not a single heir. Now, although his infirm state of health will not permit of his managing his property in person, he will not allow me either to manage it. And the reason for his conduct, his very strange conduct, he states as follows. I do not know my nephew, and very likely he is a spendthrift. If he wishes to show me that he is good for anything, let him go and acquire as many souls as I have acquired, and when he has done that, I will transfer to him my three hundred souls as well. The man must be an absolute fool, commented the general. Possibly. And were that all, things would not be as bad as they are. But unfortunately, my uncle has gone and taken up with his housekeeper, and has children by her. Consequently, everything will now pass to them. "'The old man must have taken leave of his senses,' remarked the general. "'Yet how I can help, I fail to see. "'Well, I have thought of a plan. "'If you will hand me over all the dead souls on your estate, "'hand them over to me exactly as though they were still alive "'and were purchasable property, "'I will offer them to the old man, "'and then he will leave me his fortune.' "'At this point the general burst into a roar of laughter, "'such as few can ever have heard.' Half-dressed, he subsided into a chair, threw back his head, and guffawed until he came near to choking. In fact, the house shook with his merriment, so much so that the butler and his daughter came running into the room in alarm. It was long before he could produce a single articulate word, and even when he did so, to reassure his daughter and the butler, he kept momentarily relapsing into spluttering chuckles which made the house ring and ring again. Chichikov was greatly taken aback. "'Oh, that uncle!' bellowed the general in paroxysms of mirth. "'Oh, that blessed uncle! What a fool he'll look! <laughs> Dead souls offered him instead of live ones! Oh, my goodness!' "'I suppose I've put my foot in it again,' ruefully reflected Chichikov. "'But, good Lord, what a man the fellow is to laugh! Heaven send that he doesn't burst of it!' <laughs> broke out the general afresh. "'What a donkey the old man must be! "'To think of his saying to you, "'You go and fit yourself out with three hundred souls, "'and I'll cap them with my own lot. "'My word, what a jackass!' "'A jackass?' 
your excellency? Yes, indeed. And to think of the jest of putting him off with dead souls. <laughs> What wouldn't I give to see you handing him the title deeds? Who is he? What is he like? Is he very old? He is eighty, your excellency. But still brisk and able to move about, eh? Surely he must be pretty strong to go on living with his housekeeper like that. Yes, but what does such strength mean? Sand runs away, your excellency. The old fool. But is he really such a fool? Yes, your excellency. And does he go out at all? Does he see company? Can he still hold himself upright? Yes, but with great difficulty. And has he any teeth left? No more than two at the most. The old jackass. Don't be angry with me, but I must say that, though your uncle, he is also a jackass. Quite so, your excellency. And though it grieves me to have to confess that he is my uncle, what am I to do with him? Yet this was not altogether the truth. What would have been a far harder thing for Chichikov to have confessed was the fact that he possessed no uncles at all. I beg of you, Your Excellency, he went on, to hand me over those, those, those dead souls, eh? Why, in return for the jest, I will give you some land as well. Yes, you can take the whole graveyard if you like. <laughs> the old man, <laughs> what a fool he looked. <laughs> And once more the general's guffaws went ringing through the house. At this point there was a long hiatus in the original. End of part two, chapter two. Recorded by Gazina in December 2007. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol. Translated by D.J. Hogarth Part 2 Chapter 3 Read by Ewan Bayliss If Colonel Koshkarev should turn out to be as mad as the last one, it is a bad lookout, said Chichikov to himself, on opening his eyes amid fields and open country, everything else having disappeared, save the vault of heaven and a couple of low-lying clouds. Selifan, he went on, did you ask how to get to Colonel Koshkarev's? Yes, Paul Ivanovich. At least, there was such a clatter around the Kolyaska that I could not. But Petrushka asked the coachman. You fool! How often have I told you not to rely on Petrushka? Petrushka is a blockhead, an idiot. Besides, at the present moment, I believe him to be drunk. No, you are wrong, Barin, put in the person referred to, turning his head with a sidelong glance. After we get down the next hill, we shall need but to keep bending round it, that is all. Yes, and I suppose you'll tell me that Sivnka is the only thing that has passed your lips? Well, the view at least is beautiful. In fact, when one has seen this place, one may say that one has seen one of the beauty spots of Europe. This said, Chichikov added to himself, smoothing his chin. What a difference between the features of a civilized man of the world and those of a common lackey. 
Meanwhile, the Kolyaska quickened its pace, and Chichikov once more caught sight of Chenchetnikov's aspen-studded meadows. Undulating gently on elastic springs, the vehicle cautiously descended the steep incline, and then proceeded past water mills, rumbled over a bridge or two, and jolted easily along the rough-set road which traversed the flats. Not a molehill, not a mound jarred the spine. The vehicle was comfort itself. Swiftly there flew by clumps of osiers, slender elder trees and silver-leaved poplars, their branches brushing against Salifan and Petrushka, and at intervals depriving the valley of his cap. Each time that this happened, the sullen-faced servitor fell to cursing both the tree responsible for the occurrence and the landowner responsible for the tree being in existence. Yet nothing would induce him thereafter either to tie on the cap or to steady it with his hand. So complete was his assurance that the accident would never be repeated. Soon to the foregoing trees there became added an occasional birch or spruce fir, while in the dense undergrowth around their roots could be seen the blue iris and the yellow wood tulip. Gradually, the forest grew darker, as though eventually the obscurity would become complete. Then, through the trunks and the boughs, there began to gleam points of light like glittering mirrors. And as the number of trees lessened, these points grew larger, until the travellers debouched upon the shore of the lake four versts or so in circumference, and having on its further margin the grey, scattered log huts of a peasant village. In the water a great commotion was in progress. In the first place, some twenty men, immersed to the knee, to the breast or to the neck, were dragging a large fishing net inshore, while, in the second place, there was entangled in the same, in addition to some fish, a stout man, shaped precisely like a melon or a hogshead. Greatly excited, he was shouting at the top of his voice, let Cosma manage it, you lout of a Dennis. Cosma, take the end of the rope from Dennis. Don't bear so hard on it, Toma Bolshoi. Bolshoi being the elder. Go where Toma Menshev is, Menshev being the younger. Damn it, bring the net to land, will you? From this, it became clear that it was not on his own account that the stout man was worrying. Indeed, he had no need to do so, since his fat would in any case have prevented him from sinking. Yes, even if he had turned head over heels in an effort to dive, the water would persistently have borne him up. And the same if, say, a couple of men had jumped on his back. The only result would have been that he would have become a trifle deeper submerged, and forced to draw breath by spouting bubbles through his nose. No, the cause of his agitation was lest the net should break and the fish escape. Wherefore, he was urging some additional peasants who were standing on the bank to lay hold of and to pull at an elder rope or two. That must be the baron, Colonel Koshkarev, said Selifan. Why? asked Chichikov. Because, if you please, his skin is whiter than the rest, and he has the respectable paunch of a gentleman. Meanwhile, good progress was being made with the hauling in of the baron, until, feeling the ground with his feet, he rose to an upright position 
and at the same moment caught sight of the Koliaska, with Chichikov seated therein, descending the declivity. "'Have you dined yet?' shouted the Baron, as, still entangled in the net, he approached the shore with a huge fish on his back, with one hand shading his eyes from the sun, and the other thrown backwards. He looked, in point of pose, like the Medici Venus emerging from her bath. No, replied Chichikov, raising his cap and executing a series of bows. Then thank God for that, rejoined the gentleman. Why? asked Chichikov, with no little curiosity, and still holding his cap over his head. Because of this! Cast off the net, Tomomenshev! and pick up that sturgeon for the gentleman to see. Go and help him, Telepen Kuzma. With that, the peasants indicated, picked up by the head what was a veritable monster of a fish. Isn't it a beauty? A sturgeon fresh run from the river? exclaimed the stout baron. And now, let us be off home. Coachman, you can take the lower road through the kitchen garden. Run you lout of a Tomobolshoi, and open the gate for him. He will guide you to the house, and I myself shall be along presently. Thereupon the bare-legged Tomobolshoi, clad in nothing but a shirt, ran ahead of the Koliaska through the village, every hut of which had hanging in front of it a variety of nets, for the reason that every inhabitant of the place was a fisherman. Next, he opened the gate into a large vegetable enclosure, and thence the Koliaska emerged into a square near a wooden church, with, showing beyond the latter, the roofs of the memorial homestead. A queer fellow, that Koshkara, said Chichikov to himself. Well, whatever I may be, at least I'm here, said a voice by his side. Chichikov looked round and perceived that, in the meanwhile, the Baron had dressed himself had overtaken the carriage. With a pair of yellow trousers he was wearing a grass-green jacket, and his neck was as guiltless of a collar as Cupid's. Also, as he sat sideways in his drozhki, his bulk was such that he completely filled the vehicle. Chichikov was about to make some remark or another when the stout gentleman disappeared, and presently his drozhki re-emerged into view at the spot where the fish had been drawn to land and his voice could be heard reiterating exhortations to his serfs. Yet when Chichikov reached the veranda of the house, he found to his intense surprise the stout gentleman waiting to welcome the visitor. How he had contrived to convey himself thither passed Chichikov's comprehension. Host and guest embraced three times, according to a bygone custom of Russia. Evidently, the Baron was one of the old school. I bring you, said Chichikov, a greeting from His Excellency. From whom? From your relative, General Alexander Dmitrievich. Who is Alexander Dmitrievich? What? You do not know General Alexander Dmitrievich Betashev? exclaimed Chichikov with a touch of surprise. No, I do not, replied the gentleman. Chichikov's surprise grew to absolute astonishment. How comes that about? he ejaculated. I hope that I have the honour of addressing Colonel Koshkarev. Your hopes are in vain. It is to my house, not to his, that you have come. 
and I am Peter Petrovich Pietur. Yes, Peter Petrovich Pietur. Chichikov, dumbfounded, turned to Selifant and Petrushka. What do you mean? he exclaimed. I told you to drive to the house of Colonel Koshkarev, whereas you have brought me to that of Peter Petrovich Pietur. All the same, your fellows have done quite right, put in the gentleman referred to. Do you, this to Selifan and Petrushka, go to the kitchen, where they will give you a glassful of vodka apiece. Then put up the horses and be off to the servants' quarters. I regret the mistake extremely, said Chichipov. But it is not a mistake. When you have tried the dinner which I have in store for you, just see whether you think it a mistake. Enter, I beg of you. And taking Chichikov by the arm, the host conducted him within, where they were met by a couple of youths. Let me introduce my two sons, home for their holidays from the gymnasium, said Piotr. Nikolasha, come and entertain our good visitor while you, Alexashka, follow me. And with that, the host disappeared. Chichikov turned to Nikolasha, whom he found to be a budding man about town, since at first he opened the conversation by stating that, as no good was to be derived from studying at a provincial institution, he and his brother desired to remove, rather, to St. Petersburg, the provinces not being worth living in. I quite understand, Chichikov thought to himself, the end of the chapter will be confectioner's assistants and the boulevards. Tell me, he added aloud, how does your father's property at present stand? It is all mortgaged, put in the father himself as he re-entered the room. Yes, it is all mortgaged, every bit of it. What a pity, thought Chichikov. At this rate, it will not be long before this man has no property at all left. I must hurry my departure. Aloud, he said with an air of sympathy. That you have mortgaged the estate seems to me a matter of regret. No, not at all, replied Piotr. In fact, they tell me that it is a good thing to do, and that everyone else is doing it. Why should I act differently from my neighbours? Moreover, I have had enough of living here and should like to try Moscow, more especially since my sons are always begging me to give them a metropolitan education. Oh, the fool, the fool, reflected Chichikov. He is for throwing up everything and making spendthrifts of his sons. Yet this is a nice property, and it is clear that the local peasants are doing well, and that the family too is comfortably off. On the other hand, as soon as ever these lads begin their education in restaurants and theatres, the devil will away with every stick of their substance. For my own part, I could desire nothing better than this quiet life in the country. Let me guess what is on your mind, said Piotr. What then? asked Chichikov, rather taken aback. You are thinking to yourself, that fool of a Piotr has asked me to dinner, yet not a bite of dinner do I see. But wait a little. It will be ready presently, for it is being cooked as fast as a maiden who has had her hair cut off, plaits herself a new set of tresses. Here comes Platon Mikhailich, father, exclaimed Alexashka, who had been peeping out of the window. Yes, and on a grey horse, added his brother. Who is Platon Mikhailich? inquired Chichikov. A neighbour of ours, and an excellent fellow. The next moment, Platon Mikhailich himself entered the room, 
accompanied by a sporting dog named Yarb. He was a tall, handsome man with extremely red hair. As for his companion, it was of the keen-muzzled species used for shooting. Have you dined yet? asked the host. Yes, replied Platon. Indeed? What do you mean by coming here to laugh at us all? Do I ever go to your place after dinner? The newcomer smiled. Well, if it can bring you any comfort, he said, let me tell you that I ate nothing at the meal, for I had no appetite. But you should see what I have caught, what sort of a sturgeon fate has brought my way. Yes, and what crucians and carp. Really, it tires one to hear you. How come you always have to be so cheerful? And how come you always have to be so gloomy? retorted the host. How, you ask? Simply because I am so. The truth is that you don't eat enough. Try the plan of making a good dinner. Weariness of everything is a modern invention. Once upon a time, one never heard of it. Well, boast away, but have you yourself never been tired of things? Never in my life. I do not so much as know whether I should find time to be tired. In the morning when one awakes, the cook is waiting and the dinner has to be ordered. Then one drinks one's morning tea, and then the bailiff arrives for his orders. And then there is fishing to be done, and then one's dinner has to be eaten. Next, before one has even had the chance to utter a snore, there enters once again the cook, and one has to order supper. And when she has departed, behold, back she comes with a request for the following day's dinner. What time does that leave one to be weary of things? Throughout this conversation, Chichikov had been taking stock of the newcomer, who astonished him with his good looks, his upright, picturesque figure, his appearance of fresh, unwasted youthfulness, and the boyish purity, innocence, and clarity of his features. Neither passion, nor care, nor aught, of the nature of agitation or anxiety of mind had ventured to touch his unsullied face or to lay a single wrinkle thereon. Yet the touch of life which these emotions might have imparted was wanting. The face was, as it were, dreaming, even though from time to time an ironical smile disturbed it. I too cannot understand, remarked Chichikov, how a man of your appearance can find things wearisome. Of course, if a man is hard-pressed for money, or if he has enemies who are lying in wait for his life, as have certain folk whom I know. Well then, believe me when I say, interrupted the handsome guest, that for the sake of a diversion, I should be glad of any sort of an anxiety. Would that some enemy would conceive a grudge against me? But no one does so. Everything remains eternally dull. But perhaps you lack a sufficiency of land or souls. Not at all. I and my brother own ten thousand desiatins of land, and over a thousand souls. The desiatin is 2.86 English acres. Curious. I do not understand it. But perhaps the harvest has failed, or you have sickness about, and many of your male peasants have died of it. On the contrary, everything is in splendid order, for my brother is the best of managers. Then to find things wearisome, explained Chichikov, 
It passes my comprehension. And he shrugged his shoulders. Well, we will soon put weariness to flight, interrupted the host. Alex Sashka, do you run helter-skelter to the kitchen, and there tell the cook to serve the fish pasties? Yes, and where have that gawk of an Emelian and that thief of an Antoshka got to? Why have they not handed round the Zakuski? At this moment the door opened, and the gawk and the thief in question made their appearance with napkins and a tray, the latter bearing six decanters of variously coloured beverages. These they placed upon the table, and then ringed them about with glasses and platefuls of every conceivable kind of appetizer. That done, the servants applied themselves to bringing in various comestibles under covers, through which could be heard the hissing of hot roast viands. In particular did the gawk and the thief work hard at their tasks. As a matter of fact, their appellations had been given them merely to spur them to greater activity, for in general, the baron was no lover of abuse, but rather a kind-hearted man, who, like most Russians, could not get on without a sharp word or two. That is to say, he needed them for his tongue, as he needed a glass of vodka for his digestion. What else could you expect? It was his nature to care for nothing mild. To the Zakuski succeeded the meal itself, and the host became a perfect glutton on his guest's behalf. Should he notice that a guest had taken but a single piece of a comestible, he added there to another one, saying, Without a mate, neither man nor bird can live in this world. Should anyone take two pieces, he added there to a third, saying, What is the good of the number two? God loves the Trinity. Should anyone take three pieces, he would say, Where do you see a wagon with three wheels? Who builds a three-cornered hut? Lastly, should anyone take four pieces, he would cap them with a fifth, and add thereto the punning quip, Napiat opiat, that is, one more makes five. After devouring at least twelve steaks of sturgeon, Chichikov ventured to think to himself, My host cannot possibly add to them, but found that he was mistaken, for, without a word, Piotr heaped upon his plate an enormous portion of spit-roasted veal, and also some kidneys. And what veal it was! That calf was fed two years on milk, he exclaimed. I cared for it like my own son. Nevertheless, I can eat no more, said Chichikov. Do you try the veal before you say that you can eat no more? But I could not get it down my throat. There is no room left. If there be no room in the church for a newcomer, the beadle is sent for, and room is very soon made. Yes, even though before there was such a crush that an apple couldn't have been dropped between the people. Do you try the veal, I say? That piece is the tidbit of all. So Chichikov made the attempt, and in very truth the veal was beyond all praise, and room was found for it, even though one would have supposed defeat impossible. Fancy this good fellow removing to St. Petersburg or Moscow, said the guest to himself. Why, with a scale of living like this, he would be ruined in three years. For that matter, Piotr might well have been ruined already, for hospitality can dissipate a fortune in three months as easily it can in three years. The host also dispensed the wine with a lavish hand, 
and what the guest did not drink he gave to his sons, who thus swallowed glass after glass. Indeed, even before coming to table, it was possible to discern to what department of human accomplishment their bent was turned. When the meal was over, however, the guests had no mind to further drinking. Indeed, it was all that they could do to drag themselves onto the balcony and there to relapse into easy chairs. Indeed, the moment that the host subsided into his seat, it was large enough for four, he fell asleep, and his portly presence, converting itself into a sort of blacksmith's bellows, started to vent through open mouth and distended nostrils, such sounds as can have greeted the reader's ear but seldom, sounds as of a drum being beaten, in combination with the whistling of a flute and the strident howling of a dog. Listen to him, said Platon. Chichikov smiled. Naturally, on such dinners as that, continued the other, our host does not find the time dull, and as soon as dinner is ended, there can ensue sleep. Yes, but pardon me, I still fail to understand why you shouldn't find life wearisome. There are so many resources against ennui. As for instance, for a young man, dancing, the playing of one or another musical instrument, and, well, yes, marriage. Marriage to who? To some maiden who is both charming and rich. Are there none in these parts? No. Then, were I you, I should travel and seek a maiden elsewhere. And a brilliant idea therewith entered Chichikov's head. This last resource, he ended, is the best of all resources against ennui. What resource are you speaking of? Of travel. But whither? Well, should it so please you, you might join me as my companion. This said, the speaker added to himself as he eyed Platon. Yes, that would suit me exactly, for then I should have half my expenses paid, and could charge him also with the cost of mending the Koliaska. And whither should we go? In that respect, I am not wholly my own master, as I have business to do for others as well as for myself. For instance, General Vestrischeff, an intimate friend, and I might add, a generous benefactor of mine, has charged me with commissions to certain of his relatives. However, though relatives are relatives, I am travelling likewise on my own account, since I wish to see the world and the worldly gig of humanity, which, in spite of what people may say, is as good as a living book or a second education. As a matter of fact, Chichikov is reflecting. Yes, the plan is an excellent one. I might even contrive that he should have to bear the whole of our expenses, and that his horses should be used while my own should be put out to graze on his farm. Well, why should I not adopt the suggestion, was Platon's thought. There is nothing to do for me at home, since the management of the estate is in my brother's hands, and my going would cause him no inconvenience. Yes, why should I not do as Chichikov has suggested? Then, he added aloud, would you come and stay with my brother for a couple of days? Otherwise, he might refuse me his consent. With great pleasure, said Chichikov, or even for three days. 
Then here is my hand on it. Let us be off at once. Platon seemed suddenly to have come to life again. Where are you off to? put in their host unexpectedly, as he roused himself and stared in astonishment at the pair. No, no, my good sirs, I have had the wheels removed from your Kolyaska, Monsieur Chichikov, and have sent your horse, Platon Mikhailich, to a grazing ground, fifteen versts away. Consequently, you must spend the night here, and depart tomorrow morning after breakfast. What could be done with a man like Pyotr? There was no help for it but to remain. In return, the guests were rewarded with a beautiful spring evening, for, to spend the time, the host organised a boating expedition on the river, and a dozen rowers, with a dozen pairs of oars, conveyed the party, to the accompaniment of song, across the smooth surface of the lake, and up a great river with towering banks. From time to time, the boat would pass under ropes, stretched across for purposes of fishing, and at each turn of the rippling current, new vistas unfolded themselves, as tier upon tier of woodland delighted the eye with a diversity of timber and foliage. In unison did the rowers ply their sculls, yet it was the row of itself that the skiff shot forward, bird-like, over the glassy surface of the water, while at intervals the broad-shouldered young oarsman, who was seated third from the bow, would raise as from a nightingale's throat the opening staves of a boat song, and then be joined by five or six more, until the melody had come to pour forth in a volume of as free and boundless as Russia herself. And Pyotr, too, would give himself a shake, and help lustily to support the chorus. And even Chichikov felt acutely conscious of the fact that he was a Russian. Only Platon reflected, what is there so splendid in these melancholy songs? They do but increase one's depression of spirits. The journey homeward was made in the gathering dusk. Rhythmically, the oars smoked a surface which no longer reflected the sky, and darkness had fallen when they reached the shore, along which lights were twinkling, where the fisher folk were boiling live eels for soup. Everything had now wended its way homeward for the night, the cattle and the poultry had been housed, and the herdsmen, standing at the gates of the village cattle pens, amid the trailing dust lately raised by their charges, were awaiting the milk pails and a summons to partake of the eel broth. Through the dusk came the hum of humankind and the barking of dogs in other and more distant villages, while overall the moon was rising and the darkened countryside was beginning to glimmer to light again under her beams. What a glorious picture! Yet no one thought of admiring it. Instead of galloping over the countryside, on frisky cobs, Nikolasha and Alexashka were engaged in dreaming of Moscow, with its confectioner's shops, and the theatres of which a cadet, newly arrived on a visit from the capital, had just been telling them. While their father had his mind full, of how best to stuff his guests with yet more food, and Platon was given up to yawning. Only in Chichikov was a spice of animation visible. Yes, he reflected, some day I too will become lord of such a country place. And before his mind's eye there arose also a helpmeet and some little Chichikovs. By the time that supper was finished, the party had again overeaten themselves. 
and when Chichikov entered the room allotted him for the night, he lay down upon the bed and prodded his stomach. It is as tight as a drum, he said to himself. Not another tit-bit of veal could now get into it. Also, circumstances had so brought it about that next door to him there was situated his host's apartment, and since the intervening wall was thin, Chichikov could hear every word that was said there. At the present moment, the master of the house was engaged in giving the cook orders for what, under the guise of an early breakfast, promised to constitute a veritable dinner. You should have heard Piotr's behests. They would have excited the appetite of a corpse. Yes, he said, sucking his lips and drawing a deep breath. In the first place, make a pasty in four divisions. Into one of the divisions, put the sturgeon's cheeks and some viaziga, that is, dried spinal marrow of the sturgeon. And into another division, some buckwheat porridge, young mushrooms and onions, sweet milk, calves' brains, and anything else that you may find suitable, anything else that you may have got handy. Also, bake the pastry to a nice brown on one side, and but lightly on the other. Yes, and as to the underside, bake it so that it will be all juicy and flaky, so that it shall not crumble into bits, but melt in the mouth like the softest snow that ever you heard of. And as he said this, Piotr fairly smacked his lips. The devil take him, muttered Chichikov, thrusting his head beneath the bedclothes to avoid hearing more. The fellow won't give one a chance to sleep. Nevertheless, he heard through the blankets, and garnished the sturgeon with beetroot, smelts, peppered mushrooms, young radishes, carrots, beans, and anything else that you like, so as to have plenty of trimmings. Yes, and put a lump of ice into the pig's bladder, so as to swell it up. Many other dishes did Piotr order, and nothing was to be heard but his talk of boiling, roasting, and stewing. Finally, just as mention was being made of a turkey cock, Chichikov fell asleep. Next morning, the guest state of repletion had reached the point of Platon being unable to mount his horse, wherefore the latter was dispatched homeward with one of Piotr's grooms and the two guests entered Chichikov's koliaska. Even the dog trotted lazily in the rear, for he too had overeaten himself. It has been rather too much of a good thing, remarked Chichikov as the vehicle issued from the courtyard. Yes, and it vexes me to see the fellow never tire of it, replied Platon. Ah, thought Chichikov to himself. If I had an income of 70,000 roubles, as you have, I'd very soon give tiredness one in the eye. Take Murazov, the tax farmer. He again must be worth 10 millions. What a fortune. Do you mind where we drive? asked Platon. I should like first to go and take leave of my sister and my brother-in-law. With pleasure, said Chichikov. My brother-in-law is the leading landowner hereabouts. At the present moment, he is drawing an income of 200,000 roubles from a property which eight years ago was producing a bare 20,000. Truly a man worthy of the utmost respect. I shall be most interested to make his acquaintance. To think of it, and what may his family name be? Constant Joglo. And his Christian name and patronymic? 
Konstantin Theodorovich. Konstantin Theodorovich Konstanzoglu. Yes, it will be a most interesting event to make his acquaintance. To know such a man must be a whole education. Here, Platon set himself to give Selifan some directions as to the way, a necessary proceeding in view of the fact that Selifan could hardly maintain his seat on the box. Twice, Petrushka too had fallen headlong, and this necessitated being tied to his perch with a piece of rope. What a clown! had been Chichikov's own comment. This is where my brother-in-law's land begins, said Platon. They give one a change of view. And indeed, from this point the countryside became planted with timber, the rows of trees running as straight as pistol shots, and having beyond them, and on higher ground, a second expense of forest, newly planted like the first, while beyond it again loomed a third plantation of older trees. Next, there succeeded a flat piece of the same nature. All this timber, said Platon, has grown up within eight or ten years at the most, whereas on another man's land it would have taken twenty to attain the same growth. And how has your brother-in-law effected this? You must ask him yourself. He is so excellent a husbandman that nothing ever fails with him. You see, he knows the soil, and also knows what ought to be planted beside what, and what kinds of timber are the best neighbourhood for grain. Again, everything on his estate is made to be perform at least three or four different functions. For instance, he makes his timber not only serve as timber, but also serve as provider of moisture and shade to a given stretch of land, and then as a fertiliser with its fallen leaves. Consequently, when everywhere else there is drought, he still has water, and when everywhere else there has been a failure of the harvest, on his lands it will have proved a success. But it is a pity that I know so little about it all as to be unable to explain to you his many expedients. Folk call him a wizard, for he produces so much. Nevertheless, personally, I find what he does uninteresting. Truly an astonishing fellow, reflected Chichikov with a glance at his companion. It is sad indeed to see a man so superficial as to be unable to explain matters of this kind. At length, the manor appeared in sight, an establishment looking almost like a town, so numerous were the huts where they stood arranged in three tiers, crowned with three churches, and surrounded with huge ricks and barns. Yes, thought Chichikov to himself, one can see what a jewel of a landowner lives here. The huts in question were stoutly built, and the intervening alleys well laid out, while, wherever a wagon was visible, it looked serviceable, more or less new. Also, the local peasants bore an intelligent look on their faces. The cattle were of the best possible breed, and even the peasants' pigs belonged to the poor kind aristocracy. Clearly there dwelt here peasants who, to quote the song, were accustomed to pick up silver by the shovelful. Nor were Englishified gardens and parterres and other conceits in evidence, but on the contrary, there ran an open view from the manor house to the farm buildings and the workmen's cots, so that, after the old Russian fashion, the baron should be able to keep an eye upon all that was going on around him. For the same purpose, the mansion was topped with a tall lantern 
and the superstructure, a device designed not for ornament, nor for a vantage spot for a contemplation of the view, but for supervision of the labourers engaged in distant fields. Lastly, the brisk active servant who received the visitors on the veranda were very different menials from the drunken Petrushka, even though they did not wear swallow-tailed coats, but only Cossack Chekmanu, a blue homespun cloth, Chekmanu being long belted tartar blouses. The lady of the house also issued onto the veranda, with her face of the freshness of blood and milk and the brightness of God's daylight. She has nearly resembled Platon as one pea resembles another, save that, whereas he was languid, she was cheerful and full of talk. Good day, brother, she cried. How glad I am to see you. Constantine is not at home, but will be back presently. Where is he? Doing business in the village with a party of factors, replied the lady as she conducted her guests to the drawing room. With no little curiosity did Chichikov gaze at the interior of the mansion inhabited by the man who received an annual income of 200,000 rubles, for he thought to discern therefrom the nature of its proprietor. Even as from a shell one may deduce the species of oyster or snail which has been its tenant, and has left therein its impression. But no such conclusions were to be drawn. The rooms were simple and even bare. Not a fresco, nor a picture, nor a bronze, nor a flower, nor a china whatnot, nor a book was there to be seen. In short, everything appeared to show that the proprietor of this abode spent the greater part of his time not between four walls, but in the field and that he thought out his plans, not in sybaritic fashion by the fireside, nor in an easy chair beside the stove, but on the spot where work was actually in progress, that, in a word, where these plans were conceived, there they were put into execution. Nor in these rooms could Chichikov detect the least trace of a feminine hand, beyond the fact that certain tables and chairs bore drying boards, whereupon were arranged some sprinklings of flower petals. "'What is all this rubbish for?' asked Platon. "'It is not rubbish,' replied the lady of the house. "'On the contrary, it is the best possible remedy for fever. "'Last year we cured every one of our sick peasants with it. "'Some of the petals I am going to make into an ointment, "'and some into an infusion. "'You may laugh as much as you like at my potting and preserving.' Yet you yourself will be glad of things of the kind when you set out on your travels. Platon moved to the piano and began to pick out a note or two. Good Lord, what an ancient instrument, he exclaimed. Are you not ashamed of it, sister? Well, the truth is that I get no time to practice my music. You see, she added to Chichikov, I have an eight-year-old daughter to educate and to hand her over to a foreign governess, in order that I may have leisure for my own piano playing. Well, that is a thing which I could never bring myself to do. You have become a wearisome sort of person, commented Platon, and walked away to the window. Ah, here comes Constantine, presently, he added. Chichikov also glanced out of the window and saw approaching the veranda a brisk, 
swarthy complexioned man of about forty, a man clad in a rough cloth jacket and a velveteen cap. Evidently, he was one of those who care little for the niceties of dress. With him, bareheaded, there came a couple of men of a somewhat lower station in life, and all three were engaged in an animated discussion. One of the Baron's two companions was a plain peasant, and the other, clad in a blue Siberian smock, a travelling factor. The fact that the party halted a while by the ancient steps made it possible to overhear a portion of their conversation from within. This is what you peasants had better do, the Baron was saying. Purchase your release from your present master. I will lend you the necessary money, and afterwards you can work for me. No, Konstantin Theodorovich, replied the peasant. Why should we do that? Remove us just as we are. You will know how to arrange it, for a cleverer gentleman than you is nowhere to be found. The misfortune of us mujiks is that we cannot protect ourselves properly. The tavern keepers sell us such liquor that, before a man knows where he is, a glass full of it has eaten a hole through his stomach and made him feel as though he could drink a pail of water. Yes, it knocks a man over before he can look around. Everywhere temptation lies in wait for the peasant, and he needs to be cunning if he is to get through the world at all. In fact, things seem to be contrived for nothing but to make us peasants lose our wits, even to the tobacco which they sell us. What a folk like ourselves to do, Konstantin Theodorovich. I tell you, it is terribly difficult for a mujik to look after himself. Listen to me. This is how things are done here. When I take on a serf, I fit him out with a cow and a horse. On the other hand, I demand of him thereafter more than is demanded of a peasant anywhere else. That is to say, first and foremost, I make him work. Whether a peasant be working for himself or for me, never do I let him waste time. I myself toil like a bullock, and I force my peasants to do the same, for experience has taught me that this is the only way to get through life. All the mischief in the world comes through lack of employment. Now do you go and consider the matter, and talk it over with your mere, mere being the village commune. We have done that already, Konstantin Theodorovich, and our elders' opinion is there is no need for further talk. Every peasant belonging to Konstantin Theodorovich is well off and hasn't to work for nothing. The priests of his village too are men of good heart, whereas ours have been taken away and there is no one to bury us. Nevertheless, do you go and talk the matter over again? We will, Baron. Here the factor who had been walking on the Baron's other side put in a word. Konstantin Theodorovich, he said, I beg of you to do as I have requested. I have told you before, replied the bride, that I do not care to play the huckster. I am not one of those landowners whom fellows of your sort visit on the very day that the interest on a mortgage is due. Ah, I know your fraternity thoroughly, and know that you keep lists of all who have mortgages to repay. But what is there so clever about that? Any man, if you pinch him sufficiently, will surrender you a mortgage at half price any man, that is to say, except myself, who care nothing for your money. Were a loan of mine to remain out three years, I should never demand a kopeck of interest on it. Quite so, Konstantin Theodorovich, replied the factor. 
but I am asking this of you, more for the purpose of establishing us on a business footing, than because I desire to win your favour. Pray, therefore, accept this earnest money of three thousand roubles. And the man drew from his breast pocket a dirty roll of banknotes, which, carelessly receiving, Constant Joglo thrust, uncounted, into the back pocket of his overcoat. Hmm, thought Chichikov. For all he cares, the notes might have been a handkerchief. When Constant Joglo appeared at closer quarters, that is to say, in the doorway of the drawing room, he struck Chichikov more than ever with the swarthiness of his complexion, the dishevelment of his black, slightly grizzled locks, the alertness of his eye, and the impression of fiery southern origin which his old personality diffused. For he was not wholly a Russian, nor could he himself say precisely who his forefathers had been. Yet, inasmuch as he accounted genealogical research no part of the science of estate management, but a mere superfluity, he looked upon himself as, to all intents and purposes, a native of Russia, and the more so since the Russian language was the only tongue he knew. Platon presented Chichikov, and the pair exchanged greetings. To get rid of my depression, Constantine, continued Platon, I am thinking of accompanying our guest on a tour through a few of the provinces. An excellent idea, said Constant Joglo. But precisely whither, he added, turning hospitably to Chichikov. To tell you the truth, replied that personage with an affable inclination of the head as he smoothed the arm of his chair with his hand. I am travelling less on my own affairs than on the affairs of others. That is to say, General Patrischev, an intimate friend, and I might add, a generous benefactor of mine, has charged me with commissions to some of his relatives. Nevertheless, though relatives are relatives, I may say that I am travelling on my own account as well, in that, in addition to possible benefit to my health, I desire to see the world and the whirligig of humanity which constitutes, so to speak, a living book, a second course of education. Yes, there is no harm in looking at other corners of the world beside one's own. You speak truly. There is no harm in such a proceeding. Thereby, one may see things which one has not before encountered. One may meet men with whom one has not before come in contact. And with some men of that kind, a conversation is as precious a benefit as has been conferred upon me by the present occasion. I come to you, most worthy Konstantin Theodorovitch, for instruction, and again for instruction, and I beg of you to assuage my thirst with an exposition of the truth as it is. I hunger for the favour of your words as for manner. But how so? What can I teach you? exclaimed Constant Joglo in confusion. I myself was given but the plainest of educations. Nay, most worthy sir, you possess wisdom, and again wisdom. Wisdom can only direct the management of it. Nay, most worthy sir, you possess wisdom, and again wisdom. Wisdom only can direct the management of a great estate that can derive a sound income from the same that can acquire wealth of a real, not a fictitious order, while also fulfilling the duties of a citizen, and thereby earning the respect of the Russian public. 
All this I pray you to teach me. I tell you what, said Constant Joglo, looking meditatively at his guest. You had better stay with me for a few days, and during that time I can show you how things are managed here, and explain to you everything. Then you will see for yourself that no great wisdom is required for purpose. Yes, certainly you must stay here, put in the lady of the house. Then, turning to her brother, she added, And you too must stay. Why should you be in such a hurry? Very well, he replied. But what say you, Paul Ivanovich? I say the same as you, and with much pleasure, replied Chichikov. But also, I ought to tell you this, that there is a relative of General Batrishchev's, a certain Colonel Koshkarev. Yes, we know him, but he is quite mad. As you say, he is mad, and I should not have been intending to visit him, were it not that General Batrishchev is an intimate friend of mine, as well as, I might add, my most generous benefactor. Then, said Constantinople, do you go and see Colonel Koshkarev now? He lives less than ten versts from here, and I have a gig already harnessed. Go to him at once, and return here for tea. An excellent idea, cried Chichikov, and with that he seized his cap. End of part two, chapter three, section one. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilevich Gogol, translated by D.J. Hogarth, Part 2, Chapter 3, Section 2, read by Anna Simon. Half an hour's drive sufficed to bring him to the colonel's establishment. The village attached to the manor was in a state of utter confusion, since in every direction building and repairing operations were in progress, and the alleys were choked with heaps of lime, bricks, and beams of wood. Also, some of the huts were arranged to resemble offices, and superscribed in gilt letters, depot for agricultural implements, chief office of accounts, estate works committee, normal school for the education of colonists, and so forth. Chichikov found the colonel posted behind a desk and holding a pen between his teeth. Without an instant's delay, the master of the establishment, who seemed a kindly, approachable man, and accorded to his visitor a very civil welcome, plunged into a recital of the labour which it had cost him to bring the property to its present condition of affluence. Then he went on to lament the fact that he could not make his peasantry understand the incentives to labour which the riches of science and art provide. For instance, he had failed to induce his female serfs to wear corsets, whereas in Germany, where he had resided for fourteen years, every humble miller's daughter could play the piano. Nonetheless, he said, he meant to peg away until every peasant on the estate should, as he walked behind the plough, indulge in a regular course of reading Franklin's notes on electricity, Virgil's Georgics, or some work on the chemical properties of soil. "'Good gracious!' mentally exclaimed Chichikov. "'Why, I myself have not had time to finish that book by the Duchess de la Valliere.' Much else, the colonel said. 
In particular did he aver that, provided the Russian peasant could be induced to array himself in German costume, science would progress, trade increase, and the golden age dawn in Russia. For a while Chichikov listened with distended eyes. Then he felt constrained to intimate that, with all that, he had nothing to do, seeing that his business was merely to acquire a few souls, and thereafter to have their purchase confirmed. "'If I understand you are right,' said the colonel, "'you wish to present a statement of plea?' "'Yes, that is so.' "'Then kindly put it into writing, and it shall be forwarded to the office for the reception of reports and returns.' Thereafter, that office will consider it, and return it to me, who will, in turn, dispatch it to the Estate Works Committee, who will, in turn, revise it, and present it to the Administrator, who, jointly with the Secretary, will— Pardon me, expostulated Tichikov, but that procedure will take up a great deal of time. Why need I put the matter into writing at all? It is simply this. I want a few souls which are—well, which are, so to speak, dead— "'Very good,' commented the colonel. "'Do you write down in your statement of plea "'that the souls which you desire are, so to speak, dead?' "'But what would be the use of my doing so? "'Though the souls are dead, "'my purpose requires that they should be represented as alive.' "'Very good,' again commented the colonel. "'Do you write down in your statement that it is necessary, "'or should you prefer an alternative phrase, "'it is requested, or it is desiderated, or it is prayed that the souls be represented as alive. At all events, without documentary process of that kind, the matter cannot possibly be carried through. Also, I will appoint a commissioner to guide you round the various offices. And he sounded a bell, whereupon there presented himself a man whom, addressing as secretary, the colonel instructed to summon the commissioner. The latter, on appearing, was seen to have the air half of a peasant, half of an official. "'This man,' the colonel said to Chichikov, "'will act as your escort.' "'What could be done with a lunatic like Koshkarev?' "'In the end, curiosity moved Chichikov to accompany the commissioner. "'The committee for the reception of reports and returns "'was discovered to have put up its shutters "'and to have locked its doors, "'for the reason that the director of the committee "'had been transferred to the newly formed Committee of Estate Management, "'and his successor had been annexed by the same committee.' Next, Chichikov and his escort rapped at the doors of the Department of Estate Affairs, but that department's quarters happened to be in a state of repair, and no one could be made to answer the summons, save a drunken peasant from whom not a word of sense was to be extracted. At length the escort felt himself moved to remark, "'There is a deal of foolishness going on here. Fellows like that drunkard lead the baron by the nose, and everything is ruled by the Committee of Management, which takes men from their proper work.' and sets them to do any other it likes. Indeed, only through the committee does anything get done. By this time Chichikov felt that he had seen enough, wherefore he returned to the colonel and informed him that the office for the reception of reports and returns had ceased to exist. At once the colonel flamed to noble rage. Pressing Chichikov's hand in token of gratitude for the information which the guest had furnished, he took paper and pen, and noted eight searching questions under three separate headings. 1. Why has the Committee of Management presumed to issue orders to officials not under its jurisdiction? 2. Why has the Chief Manager permitted his predecessor, though still in retention of his post, to follow him to another department? And 3. 
why has the Committee of Estate Affairs suffered the Office for the Reception of Reports and Returns to lapse? Now for a row, thought Chichikov to himself, and turned to depart, but his host stopped him, saying, I cannot let you go, for, in addition to my honour having become involved, it behoves me to show my people how the regular, the organised, administration of an estate may be conducted. Herewith I will hand over the conduct of your affair to a man who is worth all the rest of the staff put together, and has had a university education. Also, the better to lose no time, may I humbly beg you to step into my library, where you will find notebooks, paper, pens, and everything else that you may require. Of these articles pray make full use, for you are a gentleman of letters, and it is your and my joint duty to bring enlightenment to all. So saying, he ushered his guest into a large room lined from floor to ceiling with books and stuffed specimens. The books in question were divided into section, a section on forestry, a section on cattle breeding, a section on the raising of swine, and a section on horticulture, together with special journals of the type circulated merely for the purpose of reference and not for general reading. Perceiving that these works were scarcely of a kind calculated to while away an idle hour, Chichikov turned to a second bookcase. But to do so was to fall out of the frying-pan into the fire, for the contents of the second bookcase proved to be works on philosophy, while, in particular, six huge volumes confronted him under a label inscribed, A Preparatory Course to the Province of Thought, with a Theory of Community of Effort, Cooperation and Subsistence, in its application to a right understanding of the organic principles of a mutual division of social productivity. Indeed, wheresoever Chichikov looked, every page presented to his vision some such words as phenomenon, development, abstract, constants, and synopsis. This is not the sort of thing for me, he murmured, and turned his attention to a third bookcase, which contained books on the arts. Extracting a huge tome in which some by no means reticent mythological illustrations were contained, he set himself to examine these pictures. They were of the kind which pleases mostly middle-aged bachelors and old men, who are accustomed to seek in the ballet and similar frivolities a further spur to their waning passions. Having concluded his examination, Chichikov had just extracted another volume of the same species when Colonel Koshkarev returned with a document of some sort and a radiant countenance. "'Everything has been carried through in due form,' he cried. The man whom I mentioned is a genius indeed, and I intend not only to promote him over the rest, but also to create for him a special department. Herewith shall you hear what a splendid intellect is his, and how in a few minutes he has put the whole affair in order. May the Lord be thanked for that, thought Chichikov. Then he settled himself, while the colonel read aloud. After giving full consideration to the reference which your excellency has entrusted to me, I have the honour to report as follows. 1. In the statement of plea presented by one Paul Ivanovich Chichikov, gentleman, chevalier, and collegiate councillor, there lurks an error in that an oversight has led the petitioner to apply to revisional souls the term dead. Now, from the context it would appear that by this term the petitioner desires to signify souls approaching death rather than souls actually deceased. Wherefore, the term employed betrays such an empirical instruction in letters as must, beyond doubt, have been confined to the village school, seeing that in truth the soul is deathless. "'The rascal!' Koshkarev broke off to exclaim delightedly. 
He has got you there, Monsieur Chichikov, and you will admit that he has a sufficiently incisive pen. 2. On this estate there exist no unmortgaged souls whatsoever, whether approaching death or otherwise, for the reason that all souls thereon have been pledged not only under a first deed of mortgage, but also, for the sum of one hundred and fifty roubles per soul, under a second, the village of Gormalovka alone accepted, in that, in consequence of a suit having been brought against landowner Priyadishchev, and of a caveat having been pronounced by the land court, and of such caveat having been published in number 42 of the Gazette of Moscow, the said village has come within the jurisdiction of the court above mentioned. "'Why did you not tell me all this before?' cried Chichikov furiously. "'Why have you kept me dancing about for nothing?' because it was absolutely necessary that you should view the matter through forms of documentary process. This is no jest on my part. The inexperienced may see things subconsciously, yet it is imperative that he should also see them consciously. But to Chichikov's patience an end had come. Seizing his cap and casting all ceremony to the winds, he fled from the house and rushed through the courtyard. As it happened, the man who had driven him thither had, warned by experience, not troubled even to take out the horses, since he knew that such a proceeding would have entailed not only the presentation of a statement of plea for fodder, but also a delay of twenty-four hours until the resolution granting the same should have been passed. Nevertheless, the colonel pursued his guest to the gates, and pressed his hand warmly as he thanked him for having enabled him, the colonel, thus to exhibit in operation the proper management of an estate. Also, he begged to state that, under the circumstances, it was absolutely necessary to keep things moving and circulating, since, otherwise, slackness was apt to supervene, and the working of the machine to grow rusty and feeble. But that, in spite of all, the present occasion had inspired him with a happy idea, namely, the idea of instituting a committee which should be entitled the Committee of Supervision of the Committee of Management and which should have for its function the detection of backsliders among the body first mentioned. It was late when, tired and dissatisfied, Chichikov regained Kostanjoglo's mansion. Indeed, the candles had long been lit. "'What has delayed you?' asked the master of the house as Chichikov entered the drawing-room. "'Yes, what has kept you and the colonel so long in conversation together?' added Platon. "'This!' "'The fact that never in my life have I come across such an imbecile,' was Chichikov's reply. "'Never mind,' said Kostanjoglo. "'Koshkarev is a most reassuring phenomenon. "'He is necessary in that in him we see expressed in caricature "'all the more crying follies of our intellectuals, "'of the intellectuals who, without first troubling to make themselves acquainted with their own country, "'borrow silliness from abroad. "'Yet that is how certain of our landowners are now carrying on.' They have set up offices, and factories, and schools, and commissions, and the devil knows what else besides. A fine lot of wiseacres. After the French war in 1812, they had to reconstruct their affairs, and see how they have done it. Yet so much worse have they done it than a Frenchman would have done, than any fool of a Peter Petrovich Piatuk now ranks as a good landowner. But he has mortgaged the whole of his estate, remarked Chichikov. Yes, nowadays everything is being mortgaged, or is going to be. This said, Kostanjoglo's temper rose still further. Out upon your factories of hats and candles, he cried. Out upon procuring candle-makers from London, and then turning landowners into hucksters. 
to think of a Russian pomieschik, a member of the noblest of callings, conducting workshops and cotton mills. Why, it is for the wenches of towns to handle looms for muslin and lace. But you yourself maintain workshops, remarked Platon. I do. But who established them? They established themselves. For instance, wool had accumulated, and since I had nowhere to store it, I began to weave it into cloth. But mark you, only into good, plain cloth, of which I can dispose at a cheap rate in the local markets, and which is needed by peasants, including my own. Again, for six years on end, did the fish factories keep dumping their offal on my bank of the river. Wherefore, at last, as there was nothing to be done with it, I took to boiling it into glue, and cleared forty thousand roubles by the process. The devil, thought Chichikov to himself, as he stared at his host. What a fist this man has for making money. Another reason why I started those factories, continued Kastanzoglu, is that they might give employment to many peasants who would otherwise have starved. You see, the year happened to have been a lean one, thanks to those same industry-mongering landowners, in that they had neglected to sow their crops. And now my factories keep growing at the rate of a factory a year, owing to the circumstance that such quantities of remnants and cuttings become so accumulated that, if a man looks carefully to his management, he will find every sort of rubbish to be capable of bringing in a return. Yes, to the point of his having to reject money on the plea that he has no need of it. Yet I do not find that, to do all this, I require to build a mansion with facades and pillars. Marvellous! exclaimed Chichikov. Beyond all things does it surprise me that refuse can be so utilised. Yes, and that is what can be done by simple methods. But nowadays everyone is a mechanic and wants to open that money chest with an instrument instead of simply. For that purpose he hires him to England. Yes, that is the thing to do. What folly! Kostanjoglu spat and added. Yet when he returns from abroad, he is a hundred times more ignorant than when he went. Ah, Constantine, put in his wife anxiously, you know how bad for you it is to talk like this. Yes, but how am I to help losing my temper? The thing touches me too closely, it vexes me too deeply, to think that the Russian character should be degenerating. For in that character there has dawned a sort of quichotism which never used to be there. Yes, no sooner does a man get a little education into his head than he becomes a Don Quixote, and establishes schools on his estate such as even a madman would never have dreamt of. And from that school there issues a workman who is good for nothing, whether in the country or in the town, a fellow who drinks and is forever standing on his dignity. Yet still our landowners keep taking to philanthropy, to converting themselves into philanthropic knights-errant, and spending millions upon senseless hospitals and institutions, and so ruining themselves and turning their families adrift. Yes, that is all that comes of philanthropy. Chichikov's business had nothing to do with the spread of enlightenment. He was but seeking an opportunity to inquire further concerning the putting of refuse to lucrative uses. But Kostanjoglu would not let him get a word in edgeways, so irresistibly did the flow of sarcastic comment pour from the speaker's lips. Yes, went on Kostanjoglu, folk are always scheming to educate the peasant, but first make him well off and a good farmer, then he will educate himself fast enough. As things are now, the world has grown stupid to a degree that passes belief. Look at the stuff our present-day scribblers write. Let any sort of a book be published, and at once you'll see everyone making a rush for it. Similarly will you find folk saying, the peasant leads an over-simple life, 
he ought to be familiarized with luxuries and so led to yearn for things above his station and the result of such luxuries will be that the peasant will become a rag rather than a man and suffer from the devil only knows what diseases until there will remain in the land not a boy of eighteen who will not have experienced the whole gamut of them and found himself left with not a tooth in his jaws or a hair on his pate yes that is what will come of infecting the peasant with such rubbish but thank god there is still one healthy class left to us a class which has never taken up with the advantages of which i speak for that we ought to be grateful and since even yet the russian agriculturist remains the most respect-worthy man in the land why should he be touched would to god every one were an agriculturist then you believe agriculture to be the most profitable of occupations said chichikov the best at all events if not the most profitable in the sweat of thy brow shalt thou till the land to quote that requires no great wisdom for the experience of ages has shown us that in the agricultural calling man has ever remained more moral more pure more noble than any other of course i do not mean to imply that no other calling ought to be practised simply that the calling in question lies at the root of all the rest however much factories may be established privately or by the law there will still lie ready to a man's hand all that he needs he will still require none of those amenities which are sapping the vitality of our present-day folk, nor any of those industrial establishments which make their profit and keep themselves going by causing foolish measures to be adopted which, in the end, are bound to deprave and corrupt our unfortunate masses. I myself am determined never to establish any manufacture, however profitable, which will give rise to a demand for higher things, such as sugar and tobacco. No not if i lose a million by my refusing to do so if corruption must overtake the mir it shall not be through my hands and i think that god will justify me in my resolve twenty years have i lived among the common folk and i know what will inevitably come of such things but what surprises me most persisted chichikov is that from refuse it should be possible with good management to make such an immensity of profit and as for political economy, continued Kostanjoglo, without noticing him, and with his face charged with bilious sarcasm, as for political economy, it is a fine thing indeed. Just one fool sitting on another fool's back and flogging him along, even though the rider can see no further than his own nose. Yet into the saddle will that fool climb, spectacles and all. Oh, the folly, the folly of such things! And the speaker spat derisively. "'That may be true,' said his wife, "'yet you must not get angry about it. "'Surely one can speak on such subjects "'without losing one's temper.' "'As I listen to you, most worthy Konstantin Theodorovitch,' "'Chichikov hastened to remark, "'it becomes plain to me that you have penetrated "'into the meaning of life "'and laid your finger upon the essential root of the matter. "'Yet supposing, for a moment, "'we leave the affairs of humanity in general "'and turn our attention to a purely individual affair.' Might I ask you how, in the case of a man becoming a landowner, and having a mind to grow wealthy as quickly as possible, in order that he may fulfil his bounden obligations as a citizen, he can best set about it? How he can best set about growing wealthy? repeated Kostanjoglo. Why? Let us go to supper, interrupted the lady of the house, rising from her chair, and moving towards the centre of the room, where she wrapped her shivering young form in a shawl. 
Chichikov sprang up with the alacrity of a military man, offered her his arm, and escorted her, as on parade, to the dining-room, where, awaiting them, there was the soup tureen. From it the lid had just been removed, and the room was redolent of the fragrant odour of early spring-roots and herbs. The company took their seats, and at once the servants placed the remainder of the dishes, under covers, upon the table, and withdrew, for Kostanjoglo hated to have servants listening to their employer's conversation, and objected still more to their staring at him all the while that he was eating. When the soup had been consumed, and glasses of an excellent vintage resembling Hungarian wine had been poured out, Chichikov said to his host, "'Most worthy sir, allow me once more to direct your attention to the subject of which we were speaking, at the point when the conversation became interrupted. You will remember that I was asking you how best a man can set about, proceed in, in the matter of growing—' Note. Here, from the original, two pages are missing." End note. A property for which, had he asked forty thousand, I should still have demanded a reduction. Hmm, thought Chichikov, then added aloud, But why do you not purchase it yourself? Because to everything there must be assigned a limit. Already my property keeps me sufficiently employed. Moreover, I should cause our local Dvorian to begin crying out in chorus that I am exploiting their extremities, their ruined position for the purpose of acquiring land for under its value. Of that I am wary. "'How readily folks speak evil!' exclaimed Chichikov. "'Yes, and the amount of evil speaking in our province surpasses belief. Never will you hear my name mentioned without my being called also a miser and a usurer of the worst possible sort, whereas my accusers justify themselves in everything, and say that, Though we have wasted our money, we have started the demand for the higher amenities of life, and therefore encouraged industry with our wastefulness, a far better way of doing things than that practiced by Kostanjoglo, who lives like a pig. "'Would I could live in your piggish fashion!' ejaculated Chichikov. "'And so forth, and so forth. Yet, what are the higher amenities of life? What good can they do to anyone?' Even if a landowner of the day sets up a library, he never looks at a single book in it, but soon relapses into card-playing, the usual pursuit. Yet folk call me names simply because I do not waste my means upon the giving of dinners. One reason why I do not give such dinners is that they weary me, and another reason is that I am not used to them. But come you to my house for the purpose of taking potluck, and I shall be delighted to see you. Also, folk foolishly say that I lend money on interest whereas the truth is that if you should come to me when you are really in need, and should explain to me openly how you propose to employ my money, and I should perceive that you are proposing to use that money wisely, and that you are really likely to profit thereby, well, in that case you would find me ready to lend you all that you might ask without interest at all. That is a thing which it is well to know, reflected Chichikov. Yes, repeated Kostanjoglo, under those circumstances I should never refuse you my assistance but I do object to throwing my money to the winds. Pardon me for expressing myself so plainly. To think of lending money to a man who is merely devising a dinner for his mistress, or planning to furnish his house like a lunatic, or thinking of taking his paramour to a masked ball, or a jubilee in honour of someone who had better never have been born. And, spitting, he came near to venting some expression which would scarcely have been becoming in the presence of his wife. 
Over his face the dark shadow of hypochondria had cast a cloud, and furrows had formed on his brow and temples, and his every gesture bespoke the influence of a hot, nervous rancor. "'But allow me once more to direct your attention to the subject of our recently interrupted conversation,' persisted Chichikov, as he sipped a glass of excellent raspberry wine. "'That is to say, supposing I were to acquire the property which you have been good enough to bring to my notice, how long would it take me to grow rich?' "'That would depend on yourself,' replied Kostanjoglo, with grim abruptness and evident ill-humour. "'You might either grow rich quickly, or you might never grow rich at all.' If you made up your mind to grow rich, sooner or later you would find yourself a wealthy man. Indeed, ejaculated Chichikov. Yes, replied Kostanjoglo, as sharply as though he were angry with Chichikov. You would merely need to be fond of work, otherwise you would affect nothing. The main thing is to like looking after your property. Believe me, you would never grow weary of doing so. People would have it that life in the country is dull. Whereas, if I were to spend a single day as it is spent by some folk, with their stupid clubs and their restaurants and their theatres, I should die of ennui. The fools, the idiots, the generations of blind dullards. But the landowner never finds the days wearisome. It's not their time. In his life, not a moment remains unoccupied. It is full to the brim. And with it all goes an endless variety of occupations. And what occupations? occupations which generally uplift the soul, seeing that the landowner walks with nature and the seasons of the year, and takes part in, and is intimate with, everything which is evolved by creation. For let us look at the round of the year's labours. Even before spring has arrived, there will have begun a general watching and a waiting for it, and a preparing for sowing, and an apportioning of crops, and a measuring of seed grain by buyers, and drying of seed, and a dividing of the workers into teams, for everything needs to be examined beforehand, and calculations must be made at the very start, and as soon as ever the ice shall have melted, and the rivers be flowing, and the land have dried sufficiently to be workable, the spade will begin its task in kitchen and flower garden, and plough and harrow their tasks in the field, until everywhere there will be tilling and sowing and planting. And do you understand what some of that labour will mean? It will mean that the harvest is being sown, that the welfare of the world is being sown, that the food of millions is being put into the earth, and thereafter will come summer, the season of reaping, endless reaping, for suddenly the crops will have ripened, and rye-sheaf will be lying heaped upon rye-sheaf, with elsewhere stocks of barley, and of oats, and of wheat, and everything will be teeming with life, and not a moment will there need to be lost, seeing that, had you even twenty eyes, you would have need for them all, and after the harvest festivities there will be grain to be carted to bar or stacked in ricks, and stores to be prepared for the winter, and storehouses and kilns and cattle-sheds to be cleaned for the same purpose, and the women to be assigned their tasks, and the totals of everything to be calculated, so that one may see the value of what has been done. And lastly will come winter, when in every threshing floor the flail will be working, and the grain, when threshed, will need to be carried from barn to bin, and the mills required to be seen to, and the estate factories to be inspected, and the workmen's huts to be visited for the purpose of ascertaining how the mujik is faring. For, given a carpenter who is clever with his tools, I, for one, am only too glad to spend an hour or two in his company, so cheering to me is labour. 
and if, in addition, one discerns the end to which everything is moving, and the manner in which the things of earth are everywhere multiplying and multiplying, and bringing forth more and more fruit to one's profiting, I cannot adequately express what takes place in a man's soul, and that, not because of the growth in his wealth, money is money and no more, but because he will feel that everything is the work of his own hands, and that he has been the cause of everything, and its creator, and that from him, as from a magician, there has flowed bounty and goodness for all. In what other calling will you find such delights in prospect? As he spoke, Kostanjoglo raised his face, and it became clear that the wrinkles had fled from it, and that, like the Tsar on the solemn day of his crowning, Kostanjoglo's whole form was diffusing light, and his features had in them a gentle radiance. "'In all the world,' he repeated, "'you will find no joys like these, for herein man imitates the God who protected creation as a supreme happiness, and now demands of man that he, too, should act as the creator of prosperity. Yet there are folk who call such functions tedious.' Kostanjoglo's mellifluous periods fell upon Chichikov's ear like the notes of a bird of paradise. From time to time he gulped, and his softened eyes expressed the pleasure which it gave him to listen. "'Constantine, it is time to leave the table,' said the lady of the house, rising from her seat. Everyone followed her example, and Chichikov once again acted as his hostess' escort, although with less dexterity of deportment than before, owing to the fact that this time his thoughts were occupied with more essential matters of procedure. "'In spite of what you say,' remarked Platon, as he walked behind the pair, "'I, for my part, find these things wearisome.' But the master of the house paid no attention to his remark, for he was reflecting that his guest was no fool, but a man of serious thought and speech who did not take things lightly. And, with the thought, Kostanjoglo grew lighter in soul, as though he had warmed himself with his own words, and were exulting in the fact that he had found someone capable of listening to good advice.' When they had settled themselves in the cosy, candle-lighted drawing-room, with its balcony and the glass door opening out into the garden, a door through which the stars could be seen glittering amid the slumbering tops of the trees, Chichikov felt more comfortable than he had done for many a day past. It was as though, after long journeying, his own roof-tree had received him once more, had received him when his quest had been accomplished, when all that he wished for had been gained when his travelling staff had been laid aside with the words, It is finished. And of this seductive frame of mind, the true source had been the eloquent discourse of his hospitable host. Yes, for every man there exist certain things which, instantly that they are said, seem to touch him more closely, more intimately, than anything has done before. Nor is it an uncommon occurrence that in the most unexpected fashion, and in the most retired of retreats, one will suddenly come face to face with a man whose burning periods will lead one to forget oneself, and the tracklessness of the route, and the discomfort of one's nightly halting places, and the futility of crazes, and the falseness of tricks by which one human being deceives another. And at once there will become engraven upon one's memory, vividly and for all time, the evening thus spent, and of that evening one's remembrance will hold true both as to who was present, and where each such person sat, and what he or she was wearing, and what the walls and the stove and other trifling features of the room looked like. In the same way did Chichikov note each detail that evening, 
both the appointments of the agreeable but not luxuriously furnished room, and the good-humoured expression which reigned on the face of the thoughtful host, and the design of the curtains, and the amber-mounted pipe smoked by Platon, and the way in which he kept puffing smoke into the fat jowl of the dog Yarb, and the sneeze which, on each such occasion, Yarb vented, and the laughter of the pleasant-faced hostess, though always followed by the words, "'Pray do not tease him any more,' and the cheerful candlelight, and the cricket chirping in a corner, and the glass door, and the spring night which, laying its elbows upon the treetops, and spangled with stars, and vocal with the nightingales which were pouring forth warbled ditties from the recesses of the foliage, kept glancing through the door, and regarding the company within. "'How it delights me to hear your words, good Konstantin Theodorovitch,' said Chichikov, Indeed, nowhere in Russia have I met with a man of equal intellect. Kostanzoklo smiled, while realizing that the compliment was scarcely deserved. If you want a man of genuine intellect, he said, I can tell you of one. He is a man whose boot soles are worth more than my whole body. Who may he be? asked Chichikov in astonishment. Murazov, our local commissioner of taxes. Ah, I've heard of him before, remarked Chichikov. He is a man who, were he not the director of an estate, might well be a director of the empire, and were the empire under my direction, I should at once appoint him my minister of finance. I've heard tales beyond belief concerning him, for instance, that he has acquired ten million roubles. Ten? More than forty? Soon half Russia will be in his hands. "'You don't say so,' cried Chichikov in amazement. "'Yes, certainly. The man who has only a hundred thousand roubles to work with grows rich but slowly, whereas he who has millions at his disposal can operate over a greater radius, and so back whatsoever he understakes with twice or thrice the money which can be brought against him. Consequently, his field becomes so spacious that he ends by having no rivals. Yes, no one can compete with him.' and whatsoever price he may fix for a given commodity, at that price it will have to remain, nor will any man be able to outbid it. "'My God!' muttered Chichikov, crossing himself, and staring at Kostanjoglo with his breath catching in his throat. "'The mind cannot grasp it. It petrifies one's thoughts with awe. You see folk marvelling at what science has achieved in the matter of investigating the habits of cowbugs, but to me it is a far more marvellous thing that in the hands of a single mortal there can become accumulated such gigantic sums of money. But may I ask whether the great fortune of which you speak has been acquired through honest means? Yes, through means of the most irreproachable kind, through the most honourable of methods. Yet so improbable does it seem that I can scarcely believe it. Thousands I could understand— but millions? On the contrary, to make thousands, honestly, is a far more difficult matter than to make millions. Millions are easily come by, for a millionaire has no need to resort to crooked ways. The way lies straight before him, and he needs but to annex whatsoever he comes across. No rival will spring up to oppose him, for no rival will be sufficiently strong, and since the millionaire can operate over an extensive radius, he can bring, as I have said, two or three roubles to bear upon any one else's one. Consequently, what interest will he derive from a thousand roubles? Why, ten or twenty percent at the least. And it is beyond measure marvellous that the whole should have started from a single kopeck, 
Had it started otherwise, the thing could never have been done at all. Such is the normal course. He who is born with thousands, and is brought up to thousands, will never acquire a single kopeck more, for he will have been set up with the amenities of life in advance, and so never come to stand in need of anything. It is necessary to begin from the beginning rather than from the middle, from a kopeck rather than from a ruble, from the bottom rather than from the top, for only thus will a man get to know the men and conditions among which his career will have to be carved, that is to say, through encountering the rough and the tumble of life, and through learning that every kopeck has to be beaten out with a three-kopeck nail, and through worsting knave after knave, he will acquire such a degree of perspicuity and wariness that he will err in nothing which he may tackle, and never come to ruin. Believe me, it is so. The beginning, and not the middle, is the right starting point. No one who comes to me and says, Give me a hundred thousand roubles and I will grow rich in no time, do I believe for he is likely to meet with failure rather than with the success of which he is so assured. Tis with a kopeck, and with a kopeck only, that a man must begin. "'If that is so, I shall grow rich,' said Chichikov, involuntarily remembering the dead souls. "'For of a surety, I began with nothing.' "'Constantine, pray allow Paul Ivanovitch to retire to rest,' put in the lady of the house. "'It is high time, and I am sure you have talked enough.' Yes, beyond a doubt you will grow rich, continued Kostanjoglo, without heeding his wife, for towards you there will run rivers and rivers of gold, until you will not know what to do with all your gains. As though spellbound, Chichikov sat in an aureate world of ever-growing dreams and fantasies. All his thoughts were in a whirl, and on a carpet of future wealth his tumultuous imagination was weaving golden patterns while ever in his ears were ringing the words, "'Towards you there will run rivers and rivers of gold.' "'Really, Constantine, do allow Paul Ivanovitch to go to bed.' "'What on earth is the matter?' retorted the master of the household testily. "'Pray go yourself if you wish to.' Then he stopped short, for the snoring of Platon was filling the whole room, and also, outrivaling it, that of the dog Yarb. This caused Kostanzoklo to realize that bedtime really had arrived, wherefore, after he had shaken Platon out of his slumbers and bidden Chichikov good night, all dispersed to their several chambers and became plunged in sleep. All, that is to say, except Chichikov, whose thoughts remained wakeful and who kept wondering and wondering how best he could become the owner, not of a fictitious, but of a real estate. The conversation with his host had made everything clear, had made the possibility of his acquiring riches manifest, had made the difficult art of estate management at once easy and understandable, until it would seem as though particularly was his nature adapted for mastering the art in question. All that he would need to do would be to mortgage the dead souls and then to set up a genuine establishment. Already he saw himself acting and administering as Kostanjoglo had advised him, energetically, and through personal oversight, and undertaking nothing new until the old had been thoroughly learned, and viewing everything with his own eyes, and making himself familiar with each member of his peasantry, and abjuring all superfluities, and giving himself up to hard work and husbandry. Yes, already could he taste the pleasure which would be his when he had built up a complete industrial organization, and the springs of the industrial machine were in vigorous working order, and each had become able to reinforce the other. Labor should be kept in active operation, 
and, even as, in a mill, flour comes flowing from grain, so should cash, and yet more cash, come flowing from every atom of refuge and remnant. And all the while he could see before him the landowner who was one of the leading men in Russia, and for whom he had conceived such an unbounded respect. Hitherto, only for rank or for opulence had Chichikov respected a man, never for mere intellectual power. But now he made a first exception in favour of Kostanjoglo, seeing that he felt that nothing undertaken by his host could possibly come to naught. And another project which was occupying Chichikov's mind was the project of purchasing the estate of a certain landowner named Klovev. Already Chichikov had at his disposal ten thousand roubles, and a further fifteen thousand he would try and borrow of Kostanjoglo seeing that the latter had himself said that he was prepared to help anyone who really desired to grow rich, while, as for the remainder, he would either raise the sum by mortgaging the estate, or force Globuev to wait for it, just to tell him to resort to the courts if such might be his pleasure. Long did our hero ponder the scheme, until at length the slumber which had, these four hours past, been holding the rest of the household in its embraces, Unfolded also Chichikov, and he sank into oblivion. End of part two, chapter three.